am Rich Fogel, producer of Justice League, and you are listening to JLU Cast. Just imagine. The mightiest heroes of our time. Superman. Batman. Flash. Green Lantern. Wonder Woman. Hot Girl. John Jones, Manhunter from Mars. Have banded together as the Justice League to stamp out the forces of evil wherever and whenever they appear. The Fire and Water Podcast Network proudly presents... JLU Cast. Hello and welcome to the 14th episode of JLU Cast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, covering the animated adventures of the Justice League and their eventual evolution into Justice League Unlimited. I'm one of your hosts, Cindy Franklin. And I'm Chris Franklin, and we are finally here, officially, in Season 2 of both JLU Cast and, more importantly, the Justice League Animated Series. Woohoo! We have an extra special episode for you with a very special guest. As you heard before the credits, that very special guest is none other than the writer of this episode, as well as one of the regular writers and producers of Justice League, Rich Fogel. Rich has worked on a great number of shows you all know and love, but he's contributed greatly to the DCAU as well. While at WB Animation, he wrote and story edited for Superman the Animated Series, The New Batman Adventures, Batman Beyond, and its spinoff, The Zeta Project, before moving on to Justice League, where he also served as producer. In addition to contributing to the overall direction of those shows, Rich specifically wrote or co-wrote several fan-favorite episodes in those series, including Superman the Animated Series World Finest, Speed Demons, Apocalypse Now, New Kids in Town, A Fish Story, The Demon Reborn, and Legacy. For the new Batman adventures, Sins of the Father, Torch Song, Old Wounds, Judgment Day, and Beware the Creeper. Yeah, and if you can, like, World's Finest, that's the first Superman-Batman team up. Speed Demons introduces the Flash. Apocalypse Now and Legacy we covered last time. New Kids in Town was the Legion of Superheroes episode. Fish Story was the Aquaman episode. Uh-huh. The Demon Reborn was a Superman-Batman team-up with Ra's al Ghul uh-huh. and Talia. Uh, for the new Batman Adventures, Sins of the Father introduced Tim Drake. Uh, Old Wounds was the story of how Dick Grayson quit being Robin on that series. Amber Ware the Creeper, of course, introduced the Creeper. Uh-huh. So a lot of stories that were DC mythology episodes. Uh-huh. Uh, but for now, let's talk about Twilight. Cindy and I are going to handle this a little bit differently than usual because I was not about to ask a writer of Rich Fogel's caliber to read my reheated synopsis of his excellent story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll handle the synopsis here for both parts. Then on to our interview with Rich. Twilight premiered July 5th, 2003. I remember Cartoon Network showed Apocalypse Now and Legacy that day in a big marathon that led up to the premiere of of Twilight. So it was they made a big deal out of it. Mm-hmm. So it was like Rich Fogel, Rich Fogel, Rich Fogel. So that's cool. <laughs> Written by Rich Fogel and Bruce Tim, directed by Dan Ribba, music by Christopher Carter, Michael McQuistian, and Lolita Ritmanis. So all three of the composers contributed. You know it's a big episode when they all three work on it. In our cast, we have our usual Justice Leaguers, Maria Canals as Hot Girl, Kevin Conroy as Batman, Carl Lumley as John Jones, George Newbern as Superman, Susan Eisenberg as Wonder Woman, Michael Ironside returns as Darkseid, and Corey Burton returns as Brainiac. Ron Perlman steps in as Orion here. Of course, he was the voice of Clayface on mm-hmm. Batman the Animated Series, and also uh, Slade, a.k.a. Deathstroke, on Teen Titans. Uh, Rene Aubergenois as the sod. Now, he, of course, recently passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were sorry to, uh, to see that, that he had recently passed on. But he, of course, is best remembered to most of us as Odo 
on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Right. And he also had voiced the sod on the Superpowers, uh, both seasons of the Superpowers, the end of the Super Friends show. So he was returning to the character here. Speaking of Star Trek, Michael Dorn returns as Calabac. Everybody knows he's Lieutenant Worf on, uh, on Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. And before that, of course, Next Generation. Mitchell Ryan plays High Father. Now, Mitchell Ryan, Dark Shadows fans know him as Burke Devlin, mm-hmm. who was an early hero on Dark Shadows, but he was also on Dharma and Greg, and he's the boss and liar, liar. Everybody, if you mm-hmm. see him, you're like, oh, that that's Mitchell Ryan. Yeah, so familiar face. Rob Paulson plays Light Ray, and as Rich will tell us, Rob Paulson is the voice of uh, Pinky on Pinky and the Brain. And uh, Tara Strong, who, of course, was the voice of Batgirl on the new Batman Adventures, and Raven on Teen Titans, she voiced the character of Sarah that we'll meet in this episode. Great dark side. The fleet ambushed us as soon as we hit the troposphere. Starkiller 2 is gone, and we are in full retreat. They were waiting for us. You knew going into that sector was a violation of our treaty with New Genesis. It was a calculated risk. You have served me well, General. Take as many of them with you as you can. As you command, my lord. We've lost contact. General Steppenwolf, come in. Steppenwolf! I'm afraid the general isn't returning any calls today. Orion. Your invasion force is shattered. It's over. Please accept this parting gift with High Father's compliments. Steppenwolf reports in to Darkseid on Apocalypse. Steppenwolf's hologram transmission is interrupted as he succumbs to the attack and Orion greets his father. He tells him his latest plans of tyranny have been foiled once more by the forces of New Genesis, and with compliments from Highfather, he sends Steppenwolf's defeated fleet boom-tubing into Apocalypse and the Royal Palace. When Darkseid pulls himself from the rubble, he receives another transmission from Highfather, who warns him he's not going to tolerate any further acts of aggression on the evil god's part. We know of your mad ambitions, Darkseid. This is your final warning. Break the treaty again and you will be destroyed. Sometime later, Darkseid's minions order his slaves to rebuild his stronghold. Desaad makes the grievous mistake of pointing out how stupid it was for Darkseid to bring Highfather down upon them, as you would imagine, the megalomaniac doesn't respond too well to criticism and disintegrates his longtime aide with his Omega effect. Immediately afterwards, the dullard Calabac calls his father's attention to the very obvious, enormous ship that has entered Apocalypse's atmosphere. On the Justice League Watchtower, a homesick cop girl tells Jean of how she was ripped away from her home planet, Thanagar, by a criminal's particle beam and sent unwittingly to Earth. She tells him she has no way of knowing how far away from home she is or how to get there. John posits that several of the leaguers, himself, Hot Girl, Wonder Woman, and Superman, are all orphans of one form or another. Suddenly, the watchtower is shaken by some kind of disturbance. Batman and Wonder Woman examine its energy signature, but Superman knows what it is, a boom tube. It opens on the tower and out walks Darkseid himself. Superman greets their unwelcome visitor with aggravated assault, instantly knocking the tyrant to the floor and nearly shaking the watchtower out of orbit. 
Wonder Woman and Jean restrain him as Darkseid explains his presence. He seeks the Justice League's help in stopping their now-mutual foe, Brainiac. The rogue Kryptonian computer program is in the process of assimilating Apocalypse. Once he's done, he'll destroy the planet. The other leaguers are stunned to learn that Superman is just fine with that. What do you want? Though it pains me to admit it, I need your help. My latest skirmish with New Genesis has left my military forces at considerably less than full strength. Why should we help you? Because my enemy is your enemy. Even as we speak, Apocalypse is being assimilated by the Kryptonian menace known as Brainiac. You're lying. I destroyed him. Apparently, he is harder to kill than you realized. You know his pattern, Kal-El. Once he's finished siphoning the memory banks and technology of my planet, he'll annihilate it. Good. Superman. What? You can't mean. You may not care what happens to me or my world, but know this. If Brainiac isn't stopped, countless millions more will perish. Think about it. Darkseid leaves but warns the heroes that if they don't stop Brainiac on his world, he'll only destroy countless others. The leaguers try to convince Superman to act, but it's Batman who opens up the wound of how Darkseid once brainwashed him and turned him against the Earth. He challenges the Man of Steel to get over it, while Jean appeals to his more sensible side in stopping Brainiac from further tainting the legacy of Krypton. So what are you saying? You'd sacrifice millions of lives just because you don't like this guy? You don't know Darkseid like I do. We know he used you, humiliated you, brainwashed you, wound you up like a tin soldier and turned you loose against Earth. Cry me a river. On the outside chance that this isn't another one of his schemes, we have to take action. So I suggest you get over it. Brainiac has already destroyed countless civilizations and now he threatens another. Do you want this to be the legacy of your people? I'm telling you there's something wrong with this whole scenario. All right, we'll play Darkseid's game, but I need you to do something for me. Still believing they are being played by Darkseid, a reluctant Superman agrees to help, but he makes Batman promise to do him a favor. On Apocalypse, Brainiac continues to download the planet's information and resources. Darkseid's dwindled forces are no match for the advanced tech Brainiac possesses. Receiving a signal from Superman, the Despot opens a boom tube, allowing the Javelin to enter the planet's atmosphere as Brainiac begins assembling a large device of some kind. Another boom tube opens and deposits Batman and Wonder Woman on New Genesis. There they are to seek out Superman's ally, Orion, but before their search can begin, they are attacked by a giant, very hungry creature. Thankfully, they receive aid in the form of Forager, who helps them flee from the beast. When the Leaguers ask if he knows Orion, the modest hero refers to himself as a humble bug, and points skyward to the new god's floating home of Supertown. Who are you? They call me Forager. Do you know someone named Orion? Orion? I am just an unworthy bug. Orion is a god who is far above us. You're too modest. You've shown courage, compassion. No, no, you don't understand. All the gods are far above us. Making their way to the gravity-defying city, the heroes find not Orion, but the playful Light Ray, who leads them on a chase until Batman nabs him in his cape and sends him to the streets below. 
It's then that they meet Orion, who isn't too pleased to see them apparently harassing his friend. Back on Apocalypse, Superman, Hot Girl, and Jean quickly learn they can't defeat Brainiac either, not without a little home team advantage. Superman and Darkseid work together with the Man of Steel penetrating Brainiac's force field just enough for Darkseid to fire a large chest-mounted laser cannon through the hole and directly at Brainiac. Superman follows up with heat vision and enough blows to disable the force field entirely, allowing Kalibak and his army to fire upon the ship and send the rogue program packing. His body heavily damaged, he beams into his ship and the League pursues. On the javelin, Superman tells Hot Girl he's still sure Darkseid has some grand scheme in play as they follow Brainiac's mothership into an asteroid field. Their instrument readings point that their quarry is right behind them, but at first all they see is a large planetoid with craters full of advanced technology. Their ship is suddenly enveloped in a tractor beam and pulled into the asteroid, which on the outside looks like a giant portrait of Brainiac. Part 2 Inside the planetoid, the javelin is dragged down corridors filled with images of the planets Brainiac has assimilated and destroyed. Their ship is landed in the middle of what seems to be a massive city that also resembles a central processing unit. A floating platform takes them through even more large cavernous rooms until they are greeted by Brainiac himself. As he has done before, he offers Superman, or Kal-El as he knows him, a chance to join him in carrying on what he believes is Krypton's legacy. Welcome, Kal-El. Once I offered you the chance to join me in carrying on the legacy of Krypton, today I renew that offer. You must be joking. Why do you reject your great heritage? The entire history of your planet, its knowledge and splendor, its awe and mystery are encoded within me. Superman, don't... I am Krypton. You're a perversion, dishonoring the very memory of my father and all my people. And this is your final decision. Read my lips. Go to... Unfortunate, but predictable. An angry Superman flatly refuses and Brainiac attacks the Leaguers. An evenly matched fight ensues until Hot Girl manages to smash the robot to oblivion with her mace. But the computer tyrant isn't defeated so easily and reappears in multiple bodies which surround the heroes. On New Genesis, Highfather observes some children in their gardening class. The young girl Sarah is discouraged that her plant isn't as healthy as the others, but Highfather offers that everything has a purpose and a place, eventually. He uses his powers to age the plant into a healthy example like the others. Orion and Light Ray rush up with Batman and Wonder Woman, who warned him of Brainiac's attack on Apocalypse. Orion wishes to seize Darkseid's moment of weakness and attack, ending his threat once and for all. Highfather reminds him of the treaty they agreed to long ago, and the years of endless war that preceded it. He goes to commune with their energy-like deity, the Source. Well, let me mount an army. While Darkseid is under siege, we will attack and end his reign of terror once and for all. Superman asked for your help. He doesn't want to start a war. Don't be so sure. You forget. In the name of peace, we swore not to interfere on Apocalypse. We made a pact. As long as Darkseid is in power, there can be no real peace. There is truth in what you say. Then give the order. No. Though I love you like a son, you are too young to remember the endless bloodshed we endured. Before making such a terrible decision, I must commune with the Source. You will await my verdict. 
Yes, High Father. Superman and the others continue to battle against Brainiac, but another figure enters the fray, Darkseid. The Lord of Apocalypse attacks Hawkgirl and Jean and then turns his attention on the last son of Krypton. Brainiac joins him and the two manage to knock Superman out. Darkseid tells Brainiac he has brought him Superman, just as he promised. Eager for battle, Orion ignores Highfather's orders and uses his cosmic harness to open a boom tube to find his true father, Darkseid. Unable to stop him, Batman and Wonder Woman are forced to follow. Darkseid and Brainiac discuss their deal. Since Darkseid delivered Superman, Brainiac will spare Apocalypse. And with the Man of Steel captured, Brainiac can use his living DNA to continue his evolution by becoming a living Kryptonian being. Brainiac places Superman in a contraption that begins to painfully extract that DNA. But, surprise, Darkseid has other plans. While Brainiac's essence is in the planetoid's central computer, the evil god sabotages it with a device he brought, bending Brainiac to his will. I have reached the limits of my programmed functions. To evolve to the next level, I must extract living DNA from the last Kryptonian. of which this universe has never seen. Wait, what have you done? Just a minor modification to override your control circuits. You are now the instrument of my will. Hot Girl and Jean regain consciousness, and as they search for their teammates, the Martian Manhunter wonders if Brainiac might have some information on Thanagar. Hot Girl quickly changes the subject back to their mission at hand. Darkseid explains to Superman that the repurposed Brainiac can now destroy entire universes, giving him what he has always sought, the anti-life equation. Using Superman's powerful body as a conduit, the planetoid begins emitting powerful waves of energy, which Darkseid will use to obliterate the universe and rebuild it in his image under his order. Highfather's communication with the source is interrupted by the storm-like effects of Darkseid's actions, ripping plants, statues, and structures from Supertown and sending them to the singularity above. Highfathers orders everyone to evacuate the city, much to Light Ray's dismay. Brainiac warns Darkseid that his plans will soon reach critical mass and be irreversible, which pleases the tyrant. What doesn't please him is a face full of nth metal when Hawkgirl smashes him with her mace. She and Jean try to free Superman as Darkseid orders Brainiac to attack with his drone bodies. Hawkgirl is taken down, but Jean fights on disabling a Brainiac drone by shoving his fist through its head and firing his arm cannon like a gun. Having used his mother box to follow Darkseid there, Orion arrives with Batman and Wonder Woman. A bloody father and son reunion is soon underway as the two trade blows. Batman grabs Hawkgirl and Jean covers him as he attempts to stop Brainiac's central unit. On New Genesis, the escape pods eject from Supertown as a bewildered forager witnesses below. Unable to decipher the controls, Batman finally smashes Brainiac's console and breaks Darkseid hold. The resultant feedback frees Superman, but Brainiac warns that the entire structure will soon explode. The League makes their way to the Javelin, but Superman has other ideas. In the tunnels below, father and son continue to pummel each other. Darkseid admits he's proud of his son's strength and resolve, but that doesn't stop him from breaking his back in order to stop him. His victory is brief as he turns to find Superman waiting for him. As Michael Bailey would say, the Man of Steel has had enough of his shit and is calling him out for good this time. He blasts the mother box on Orion's hip. There will be no escape. Any minute now, Brainiac will explode. And guess what? 
You're going with him. No, Darkseid. To get off this rock, you'll have to go through me. You really are a glutton for punishment. Time and again I've beaten you, humbled you. What makes you think today's outcome will be any different? Because this time, I won't stop until you're just a greasy smear on my fist. Let's go. two titans engage in battle while elsewhere wonder woman notes superman is missing an agitated batman knows where he is and tells the others to take off while he retrieves him superman is getting tossed around like a rag doll by dark side the evil god stomps his head into the tunnel's pavement but then two red dots appear on his foot this is where you belong superman under my heel Darkseid screams in pain as heat beams erupt from below. Superman then rebounds, giving his most hated foe a smackdown for the ages. He punches it into the ceiling and his body creates a trench for what seems like a mile. The Man of Steel moves in to finish it when Batman appears. He tries to reason with his teammate and even grabs at him, but the fighting mad Kryptonian swats him aside and orders him to go. Superman! Go! I'm finishing this! Kent, don't be a fool. Ugh. Batman activates his mother box and grabs Superman, who protests with an angry NO! The boom tube pulls Orion's body in as well. Darkseid looks up from the floor and smiles, satisfyingly declaring his opponent a loser. Brainiac then explodes, seemingly killing them both. Later on New Genesis, Batman tells Superman that not even Darkseid could have survived that blast. A still angry Superman rebukes the Dark Knight's infallible logic. Nothing could have survived that. Not even Darkseid. You know something, Bruce? You're not always right. Highfather watches over the injured Orion as Light Ray arrives with sad news. The other denizens of Supertown are nowhere to be found. All hope seems lost until the children and the others come running to Highfather. They tell them that Forager hid them in his home underground until the storm passed. Forager begs Highfather's forgiveness for his presumption, but Highfather apologizes himself for forgetting his own lesson about everything having a purpose and a place. John tells Hawkgirl that she will find her place one day. As she entertains the notion, she looks across the sky to the stars above. Any sign of the others? I've searched everywhere. There's nothing. Then all is lost. Listen. I'll race you! Hi, Father! Hi, Father! It's a miracle! How did you survive? He found us and hid us in his hive until the storm blew over. You did this? Forgive my presumption, High Father. No. Forgive me. For forgetting that everything has a purpose. And a place. Today, 
here at our side, you have found your place. Perhaps someday you will find yours as well. Someday. Okay, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll discuss this episode and much more with its writer, our special guest, Justice League producer, Rich Fogel. Hey, everyone. My name is Michael Bailey, and I like Superman. Like, a lot. Like, he's my favorite character. I like him so much that I have podcasted about the Man of Steel more than any other character. Back in 2017, I started a show called It All Comes Back to Superman to serve as the monthly reaffirmation of my Kryptonian faith. Well, the monthly thing hasn't worked out, but I'm hoping to change that in 2020. This year, there will be at least one episode a month of the show, and most of those will be part of a series I'm calling Superman is for Everybody. Superman is for everybody springs from my desire to talk to people that have channeled their love and affection for the character into other avenues like cosplay or podcasting or academia. New episodes will drop in the first or second week of the month with special episodes popping up at random because that's how I roll apparently. It all comes back to Superman as part of the Fortress of Bailitude podcasting network which can be found at www.fortressofbailitude.com. The show is available through Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, and it's even on Spotify. It all comes back to Superman. Because really, it does. Give me a few minutes and I'll make the connection. Why are you walking away? I'm not done talking to you yet. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast. A new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue in release order tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter Batman Doctor Fate Black Canary Fire Ice Maxwell Lord Oberon Captain Marvel Rocket Red Captain Adam Mr. Miracle Guy Gardner Booster Gold Blue Beetle Nort And many, many more. Justice League International Blah Ha Ha Podcast coming March 2016 as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? Now the moment you've been waiting for. We'd like to introduce our very special guest. Since the early 1980s, he's been involved in some of your favorite animated projects in many capacities, from storyboard artist to writer to story editor and producer. He worked at Warner Brothers Animation in the heyday of the DCAU, writing, editing, and producing stories featuring our favorite heroes, Superman, Batman, Batman Beyond, and of course, the Justice League. Please welcome to JLU cast Rich Fogel. Hey, Rich. Hey, how you doing? Great. Thanks so much for agreeing to come on the show and for actually listening to the show from the beginning. You yes. actually commented on our first episode. <laughs> Wait. It, it's my pleasure, and it's it's nice to see that people are, are still enthusiastic about the show. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you guys did, I mean, fantastic work. The fact that there's still so much DCAU stuff 
that's you know merchandise and websites and YouTube channels and I mean it's it's yeah there's people still talking about all these stories uh, all these years later although to me it's 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 still so very fresh in mm-hmm. in, in our minds so uh, it's it's so great. But then again, it. I'm still 23, so you know. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> been a little bit. <laughs> Yes, in my mind, I'm still a little kid, too. Yeah, see, there you go. <laughs> uh, so we just wanted to, you know, we ask you a few questions uh, pertaining to your career in general and your career in the DCAU, and then talk about the episode that we're featuring this time, Twilight, which uh, you had a humongous hand in, uh, which we will get to. Uh, but before we get to that, just uh, uh, did you have quite a history writing stories set in the DC universe and Marvel as well. Were you a fan of comics growing up? Oh yes, absolutely. Um, I, I was more of a Marvel guy than a DC guy, but one of the first comics that I got was the, uh, giant Batman annual number one, the thousand and one secrets of Batman and Robin. Mm. And that was a really good introduction to uh, the whole Batman mythos. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a great place to start. <laughs> yeah, so, so 1961. Wow. So do you have a favorite DC character? Oh, you know, I, I like them all. I, I, I am rather partial to Martian Manhunter. Oh, cool. All right. Cool. Um, I think he's an interesting character and one that is underutilized. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it. They're all great. You guys did a lot with Martian Manhunter, of course, in the series. So, uh, I mean, really the first time he got to shine outside of comics at all. So, yeah, you guys yeah. Had, had really laid the roadmap for how he would be handled. Uh, I don't know. He was in that live action Hanna-Barbera special in the uh, in the 70s. <laughs> oh, <my gosh. laughs> oh, man. Yeah. And then, of course, that Justice League pilot with David Ogden Stiers as, as Martian Manhunter. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> fantastic actor, but maybe not quite the right casting. But yeah. uh, <laughs> he did the best he could. That's right. That's, that's right. That's right. So was animation something you were always interested in getting into as far as your career path or? Well, I would like to say yes, but I'm not that smart. Um, <laughs> I was, I was always interested in animation. I, you know, grew up watching it, um, you know, and was really into it. Mm-hmm. Um, when I went to film school, uh, I went to AFI and I studied cinematography. Oh, okay. So, uh, um, you know, that was a whole different direction. And then when I uh, got out of school and was looking for a job, um, a college roommate of mine, I ran into him at a movie theater and he was working at a little animation house out in um, Reseda called Filmation. Oh. And he said, I hear they're hiring. Uh, they're looking for artists. And I said, I can draw. So I went and applied and got a job in the storyboard department there. Um, that that roommate, by the way, was Sam Simon, who went on to co-create The Simpsons. Oh, Dang. wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, little animation studio, which I guess they were little, but to, to a lot of us kids around our age, Filmation was a huge part of, of our childhood, you know, because that, 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 uh, Lou Scheimer, Norm Prescott rotating logo, uh, you yep. know, <laughs> we all knew it from so many different, uh, cartoons. So, 
Actually, you know, uh, there were quite a few other folks that worked at WB that at one point worked at Filmation. So did you work with any of your future uh, Justice League and DC animated uh, collaborators like Bruce Timm or Paul Dini or any of those guys? Not not directly. Uh, Paul wrote some scripts for uh, Shazam, I think. Um, but, and, you know, I had met him there, but the way it was, it was, the studio was run, it was very segmented, that the, the, there was not a, a lot of overlap, um, with, uh, the other things. So that like the people who were working in writing or in layout, you know, we didn't interact with a lot. Um, but there were a lot of people who sort of, it was a weird time in animation because, uh, believe it or not, nobody wanted to do it at that period of time. <laughs> and the uh, studio was basically made up of journeyman animators who'd been in the business for 30 or 40 years and were getting ready to retire. And they were literally hiring people off of the street because they needed warm bodies to do the uh, the work. And so it was a great place to learn animation, learn the ropes of animation, um, and I was really, I really felt fortunate to be there at that period of time. And, uh, and the people who were in the department went on to do great things, uh, in the sort of television animation, uh, renaissance at Disney and at Warner Brothers and, and stuff like that. So this was really sort of like the training ground for all of those people. Wow. That's, that's awesome. I, I, I always said I was born way too, I was born too late because. Yeah. <laughs> That's, you know, that, that, uh, that period of, of, of like that when you're saying they were like, you know, if you could draw, you could, you know, have an opportunity there. So, oh man, that's awesome. Well, you were born at the wrong time and in the wrong state. Yeah, that's true too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. That's true too. Um, so you said you worked on, uh, the kids superpower hour with Shazam. Uh, and yep. there was also, uh, the new adventures of Zorro and Flash Gordon. I see in your IMDb listings. So how did it feel to get to work on those characters? I mean, was that, did you feel like that was such a, a big deal to you because you grew up uh, knowing of those characters? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was great. And I have a great affection for those. Uh, we worked on the Lone Ranger also. Um, the, and Shazam was particularly good because the, the uh, style was, was modeled after the sort of CC Beck version of it. And so it was a very, uh, you know, innocent and cartoony style and, and the, and the stories reflected that. Um, some of the other ones, the Flash Gordon and Zorro and Lone Ranger, um, were a little bit frustrating to work on because the, the production level was not up to what they were trying to do. And so, you know, I would have liked to have had better scripts and, and sort of a little more scope in the animation and stuff like that. But again, like I said, it was a, a great place to learn. Um, but that frustration over sort of scripts that, that we felt were inadequate uh, really led me to um, into writing because you, you work very hard and make the script work in storyboard. And after a while, you're, you sort of go, well, heck, I could do better than that. <laughs> um, and, and so I, um, I moved over into the writing. Wow. Okay. Okay. Was that a hard transition? I mean, were they open to that or were you just like, Hey, I know what I'm doing. Let me have a shot at this. No, they were not open to it. Uh, they, they had me pegged as, Oh, that's that storyboard guy who wants to write. Mm. And so I had to prove I could do it. And then, and then it was fine. 
Okay. So now your first writing credit on IMDb, which it might be wrong because IMDb sometimes wrong. And how cool is that that you're on IMDb? You're like, hey, there I am. I'm, I'm on here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but your first credit is for Super Friends, the legendary superpower show, and the episode "The Case of the Dreadful Dolls in the Royal Ruse." So, right. you this is you going back back to this series with the DC characters. So, how did you come to uh, work on that series? Um, I actually the first thing I wrote was a Smurfs uh, episode. Oh, okay. um, well, it, it's just. The, the timing of when they were released is is different, but I wrote the, the Smurfs one first. So I'd been in there uh, pitching stories to the Smurfs. Um, I sold one uh, that was based on explaining Einstein's theory of relativity, um, which they hadn't gotten that pitch very often. <laughs> um, and, and they liked the writing I was doing. And so... Um, Super Friends was starting up again with a, a new group of story editors. Uh, Alan Burnett and Jeff Siegel were running it. And so they were looking for new writers. And somebody uh, in-house said, well, there's this guy who's writing on Smurfs. You ought to talk to him. And since I was familiar with and a fan of the comic books, it was a, an easy thing for me to go in and, and work with them on it. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, of course, Alan Burnett's a, a name that figures large in the DC animated universe. So. That's, uh, I guess it was that when you first met Alan. Yeah, yeah. I, they they had an office in a uh, in a portable trailer in the parking lot at uh, at Hanna Barbera because there wasn't enough office space. Oh, so uh, yeah. <laughs> the it was a, a me- <laughs> Yes, it was a memorable meeting, and uh, and Alan is a great guy, and I owe a lot of my career to him and to Gene McCurdy, who kept, who was the uh, executive who kept hiring me over and over again. So. Was she, was she involved in that iteration of the super friends as well at, or she had, yeah, she was an, yeah, she was an executive at Hammer Barbera at that point. Right. Um, And then then she moved over to Marvel for a while and she hired me there. And uh, then she hired me at Warner brothers. So. Oh, all right. Yeah, and of course, Gene McCurdy was, was the head of Warner Animation when the DC Animated Universe started, right? So, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, the second season of the Superpowers uh, show, they renamed it Superpowers Team Galactic Guardians, and you are credited with an episode called The Dark Side Deception. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> that was a little uh, foretelling of, of where your career was going to go uh, a little bit later. <laughs> So, uh, did you have any affinity for uh, Jack Kirby's Fourth World, or? Uh, you, uh... Oh, I, I was a I was a huge Jack Kirby fan from from the days at Marvel, and I remember buying the first uh, New Gods um, uh, issue off of the off of the the stands uh, when it came out, um, and I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, I didn't follow all of the sort of Jimmy Olsen and Forever People things. Um, but when it came time to write this, I was I was certainly familiar with uh, the fourth world stuff, and um, I, I was lucky enough to go to the go down to the local comic book store, and they had a set of uh, reprints that that uh, DC had done, uh, I guess in the in the early '80s, um, that had like two issues of in each 
each two stories in each issue. And so they reprinted the whole run of New Gods. And so I just picked those up and did a cram course on it to make sure that I that I understood it all properly. Oh, cool. Did you ever try to sneak Orion or Mr. Miracle into the cartoon? <laughs> um, no, they, they, Hanna-Barbera was, was pretty strict about like not introducing unnecessary models. It was, uh, it was later on when I was able at Warner's, when I was able to sneak in some of the, uh, tertiary characters. Right. Right. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get, we've got that in our notes to ask you about when we get there. <laughs> All right. So you wrote for a lot of different series in the eighties and nineties, like the gummy bears, the Smurfs, the Muppet babies, which I can't help it. Every time I see that the song is running through my head. Um, <laughs> Muppet babies. Yep. Yeah, but anyway, anyway, uh, sorry. <laughs> Captain planet, pinky of the brain. Is there any particular series that stands out for you? That was maybe a favorite. Well, I, I enjoyed them all. Um, I think, I think Smurfs was, was a favorite, a particular favorite of mine because that was the first one that I worked on, on staff and as a story editor and all of that. So I, I was really involved in, in that, um, sort of early on in my career. And so that, mm-hmm. that really made an impression on me. Gummy Bears was great because it was Disney quality, um, and being able to sort of, uh, you know, go from what we were doing at Filmation to just a few years later doing the kind of things that we were doing on Gummy Bears was just amazing. Right, right. So, and thinking and thinking, the brain was always fun because it was so sophisticated and um, and just they're great characters to work. Well, with. I mean, it's got two levels. I mean, you've got one that's for the kids, but then you've got another one that's for. I mean, we watched it when we were in college and thought it was hilarious. I mean, you know, you could. Get the, I mean, it was. I loved Pinky in the Brain. Yeah, I mean, you guys did some references to things that you know that went over my head, and then I'd like go find out what they were talking about, basically. And they're like, "Oh, that's a reference to yeah. <laughs> to this to this." Well, movie. and it ought to, you know, like when Batgirl even references it in the animated series, the oh, same thing we do every night. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I grew up watching Rocky and Bullwinkle and that had a very similar sensibility in that it had well, lots of silly physical stuff, but then a lot of um, very sophisticated wordplay and references that like it wasn't until years later that I was like, oh, yeah, that's what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I like that over and under writing. Right. Yeah. And, and, and through a lot of the material you worked on, I mean, that that kind of came back from the days of Jay Ward and those, those creators like on Rocky and Bullwinkle, because it had kind of, kind of died out with the, uh, to some extent with all the, uh, I guess the, the parent groups and why the super friends in early seasons couldn't throw a punch. And, you know, it it really did become kind of more kids domain. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So you added the producer credit with the adventures of gummy bears and yo Yogi. And how was that like to go into a different role? It, it wasn't that different from what I was doing before. Um, as a story editor, um, you know, you were in charge of coming up with the stories and, and the scripts and everything like that. And um, I was, re- even at that point, I was reviewing storyboards and making notes on the storyboards and things like that to make sure that the intention of the script went through into production. Gotcha. Um, so it was really more doing more of the same thing, but just sort of getting the credit for it. Right, right. 
and hopefully getting paid. So, a little better. <laughs> well, this is animation after all. They don't pay a lot. <laughs> well, true, true. So, uh, so how did you come to work at Warner Brothers Animation at uh, in the uh, early nineties? Well, I had been busy working on other projects, and so I missed out sort of the first wave of Batman stuff, which really disappointed me. Um, but then when Superman started up, uh, I was having lunch with Alan and said, Hey, you know, I'd really love to do that. And he said, okay. So, um, I got assigned the first, uh, Brainiac, uh, story. So the first season of Superman, I was doing freelance and then I was brought on uh, staff for the second season. Okay. Okay. Cool. So, Beside the dark side related episodes we're going to discuss, are there any particular favorites from the DCAU animated series before Justice League that you'd like to, to point out that you're particularly, hey, I'm, you know, that, that they're a favorite that you were involved in? Um, I, I actually really liked the, uh, the second Brainiac story in, in Superman, the one where he, uh, takes Lex Luthor captive. Mm. Um, and I, I can't remember the title of it at, this particular moment, but it was, it was loosely based on the demon seed, the movie and the story. And uh, that one, I just really, it was sort of like a dark mirror episode, but way before that became a thing. Right. And that's something that justice league unlimited will later mine that particular episode for a big, big plot point. (laughs) It it, it comes back, (laughs) which we'll come back to a, a lot of the, you planted a lot of seeds, uh, in, in your yeah. episodes that uh, bore fruit later, so uh. yeah. Well, the thing about that that episode was that um, that I had written the first Brainiac story based on like the notes that they had given me and stuff like that. But that that second Brainiac story was one that was like my idea that I pitched and we did. So I, I felt a little more ownership of it. Right, right. I, I really like the uh, the aspect of Brainiac on the animated series where. Um, you all had him come from Krypton where he was actually the computer uh, on system on Krypton. Whose I, whose idea was that initially? Or do you, re, do you recall who, or who came up with that one? You know, that was something that came up in discussion. I believe it was Alan Burnett who, who was the one who proposed that originally. Okay. Um, you'd have to check with him, but my, my recollection is that that's, that's what it was. You guys did a great job establishing that. It made it. It made every time Brainiac showed up, it was a lot more personal for Superman. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So, whose idea was it to emphasize the fourth world characters on Superman the animated series? I suspect that came from Bruce, who is a huge Kirby fan. Um, but I think everybody was in agreement about it, um, and I think also we were struggling a bit from the standpoint that Superman's rogues gallery is not quite as strong as, um, as Batman's. Mm -hmm. And so we needed a big bad. We needed something that was really going to challenge Superman and, and dark side was just tailor made for that. So it, it really made a lot of sense. So you ended up writing two of the most well-regarded episodes of Superman the Animated Series, Apocalypse Now and Legacy. Was there some kind of office lottery to see who got to write those? Or <laughs> No. Um, no. They, um, I mean, Bruce knew that I was a Kirby fan. Uh-huh. Um, and I had 
you know, from because of my storyboard background, um, I, I do well with writing like big action scenes mm-hmm. and stuff. So I think it, they just thought it was a good fit. And Bruce had this sort of idea for a story uh, that ended up being Apocalypse Now. And so um, the, the way it worked was that we sort of we went through several iterations in in the outline stage and everybody got input on it. And then, you know, I, and then I wrote the script and, um, but yeah, it was, it was basically, um, they knew that I knew that world and, and would know how to handle it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And I understand that, uh, from the commentary track for apocalypse now that it was your idea to add Steppenwolf into the story. <clears throat> so was he a particular character you were, wanting to to get into the the mix of characters? Well, I think it was more a question of um, that there was this rich world in in the fourth world characters there. And as we were filling out the story, we could either put in, you know, generic soldiers and and things like that. And I thought, why do that? Why not not use one of the characters that's already established in there? Um, And so, you know, it would be much more specific that way. and so I, I threw in a, several characters that surprised Bruce, and I think it pleased him because it was like, oh, yeah, this guy knows what he's doing. Uh, gotcha. <laughs> okay. Here's the question that I, I have wanted been, how on earth did you get Dan Turpin's death past standards? I, I, how did you do that? I mean, I was just like, holy crap, when I saw that. <laughs> well, we knew it was final, but... Uh, in order to get it past standards and practices, we had to sort of suggest to them that we had a story in mind where he would come back. Oh, <laughs> oh okay. So you kind of did a little and bit of just, a shell game. <laughs> and so we just never got around to telling that other story. Uh-huh. Oh. Well, Darkseid can just bring people back with his Omega Beams, right? He's done it before, so. <laughs> wow. <Yeah>. <laughs> Now, Bruce Tim, uh, going back to that commentary track, he actually said the Kents were under consideration to be killed. So how would that have worked out? Not very well. <laughs> um, I think, I think you know, in the room, a lot of ideas are thrown out, and that was one of them. Um, and I think pretty soon uh, people realized that that was maybe a step too far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a little, little, little too dark. A little too dark. Right, right. And well, if Superman's got a mat on for Dark Side now. If he, oh, killed the Kents, can you imagine? I mean, yeah. <laughs> oh, heck. Ooh. Uh, so, uh, any any other thoughts you'd like to share on that uh, two parter? Well, um, it was interesting because when Bruce was talking about him setting up these things that were going to be drilling holes into the into the Earth and turning it into apocalypse and everything, we thought, well, that. That's a weird idea, um, but it's one that seems to have have uh, struck a chord and uh, has that idea has been recycled a few times, including like uh, one of the latest Superman movies. So right. it's it's an idea that hasn't gone away. Right, right, yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, Legacy, that was a bold ending for the series. And I understand Legacy was initially considered to start the last batch of episodes. 
and Superman would slowly earn back the trust of the people over the course of the remainder of the episode. So why was that scrapped? Um, I think the main thing, uh, the main reason was probably that Paul Dini was not good at deadlines. Um, <laughs> okay. He is a super talented writer uh, and contributed a lot of great ideas to the, this um but he had this idea and he was struggling with it and noodling around with it and we were like okay well we'll do some other episodes first and and pretty soon it got to be the end of the of the season and it was like we still haven't done this thing yet and so they asked me to come in and help out um uh, and and get it done finally so gotcha. um um and as it worked out um what we did with that last season of superman was uh we introduced a lot of supporting characters including you know the first uh you know green lantern and aquaman uh appearances and and stuff like that and that helped us when we were when we were sort of getting ready to move into justice league so it worked out all right yeah. um but it was something that they discussed early on when they were developing the series and particularly with the Brainiac story. Um, when I came into it, I was like, why, why are the generals listening to Superman? You know, he just got there and they were like, that's just the way we're handling it. You know, we, we don't want to have distrust with Superman. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so that's the way they played it. And then this idea came along that, that like maybe we could do that. And we thought there was some mileage to be had there. You guys kind of were ahead of the curve because I mean that that distrust of Superman is is kind of where Zack Snyder started with the character in in Man of Steel and in his movie. Yeah, well, don't don't, don't get me started on that. <laughs> I, I think he belongs in our camp. <laughs> But when you guys did it, everybody likes it. So that's, <laughs> and it's a little controversial on the other way. So, uh, well, in, in that aspect, it was a quote unquote earned distance. Yeah, it was earned. You right. Know? Exactly. Yeah. 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 So in Superman, you know, had to earn it, earn the trust back. But, uh, we'll, and we'll get to that here in a moment. But I just, it, while we're in that episode in particular, Superman is straight up obliterate some parademons with his heat vision when he comes to apocalypse. And, and I understand that sequence was storyboarded by the late great Darwin cook. And uh, yep. Bruce Tim said, Alan Burnett actually opposed this. What were your thoughts on it? I thought it was cool. I mean, I, I, again, it's a question of, is that moment earned? And I felt like it was, mm -hmm. you know, um, at that point, Superman was not messing around. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree. <laughs> okay. So did you know for certain that Justice League was a go when you placed Legacy as a series finale? Because like I said before, I cannot, I was so shocked at how much, you know, with Turpin's death and everything. I mean, I was just like, oh, they ended it like that? Yeah, you well, know, and, then, so. and then Superman being kind of on the back foot with everybody yeah, at, exactly. at the end of Legacy, yeah. Um, we actually thought we were going to get another season of Superman. So oh, we were okay. setting that up for, for the next season. And then they didn't. Um, and that had more to do with Batman than it did with Superman. Um, they wanted to do a different kind of Batman series, which became Batman Beyond. Um, they, they wanted to do a, a younger and less dark, um, Batman. So they got 50% of what they wanted. <laughs> yeah, they got the younger 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think he's less dark. Yeah. <laughs> Return of the Joker. Return of the Joker alone says not. Yeah. yeah. Jeez. Wonderful, but very dark. Yes. Yeah. And anyway, so yeah, we were laying track to do another season uh, of Superman, and we just never got a chance to do it. Oh man. So is there any? Was there any? Any uh, story tidbits you can give us that you recall from this uh, lost season Next of season, Superman? Yeah. I, did, I don't remember. I, I'm sorry. I don't, I oh, really no, that's don't fine. No, that's fine. Oh, no. That was just us being nosy. Yeah, we're just so. Being nosy. <laughs> <laughs> so, coming into Justice League, did you know from the start you were saving Darkseid for season two? Bruce didn't want to do Darkseid at all. So, so um, it was it was only when I pushed him on it that we that he finally said, Yeah, well, okay, we can use Dark Side. But um yeah, he didn't want to use him at all. Um partially because he felt like he had done what he wanted to do with Dark Side. Um and partially it was that it was so closely linked with Superman that we didn't want this to be just like more of a Superman episode. Um, you know, we were trying to establish an identity for Justice League that was its own thing. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, okay. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we didn't have a lot of uh, Batman villains in the first season and stuff like that. We tried, we were trying to cover new ground. Kind of make it more of a homogenous, not homogenous, but more where you had something here, 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 here. It was for everybody, something for all seven of them to do. Yeah, a more unified universe mm-hmm. uh, kind of thing. And then when we got into the second season and we felt like we had established everything and then it felt more comfortable bringing in some of those, some of those elements from the previous shows. Gotcha. So to go back to season one, do you have overall thoughts on it? Do you have a favorite episode or moments that you're particularly fond of or proud of? Well, given what we were trying to do, I'm not sure anybody had ever tried to do something as ambitious as that before. Um, I'm, you know, I'm pretty proud of that first season. Um, there was a lot of learning along the way. Um, you have to realize that in the animation pipeline that the writing and the storyboarding was all done before we saw a single frame of animation back. Mm-hmm. So the opportunity to really learn and get feedback uh from the stuff that we were producing. And it wasn't until we got to the end of the season that we were able to sort of, and started getting footage back that we were able to look back and say, you know, this was really working well. And this, this wasn't so, um, but you know, given that from where we were starting, I I thought we hit the ground pretty, pretty well to begin with. Uh Um, You know, our mantra going into it was this isn't super friends. This isn't super friends. Uh Um, And I remember when we got the, uh, the footage back from the first, uh, the first episode, Secret Origin, at the end, they're all standing on the watchtower together, and there's a shot there, and Bruce went, huh, looks like Super Friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and to a certain extent, I wish we had leaned into that a little bit more. Um, the previous shows had had the, the dark deco backgrounds for, um, for Batman and they had had the sort of modern backgrounds for Superman, the streamlined uh-huh. uh, things. And I, and I think it would have looked really cool if, um, if we had gone to the next thing, which would have been mid century modern uh, for the design uh-huh. sense Aesthetic, of the backgrounds. Yeah. 
Mm. Uh, it would have given it a style, but the decision was made that these characters were so, um, you know, so super and so unusual that, that Bruce really wanted to root it in quote, the real world, which ended up making the backgrounds kind of bland, I thought. Mm. Um, so I, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more style there, but it, you know, it, it worked out okay. Yeah, the real world can be kind of boring at times. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We'd rather live in the animal well, and, world. <laughs> yeah, and, and the, what I wanted the audience to come away with was that sort of buzz that you get after having read a really good comic book, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of excitement. And, and I think to a large degree, we, we accomplished that. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And, and, and I know you guys, I mean, you're on the DVD round table discussion for season one. Uh, and, and you guys are pretty hard on, on yourselves in that, uh, in that discussion. I, I think, you know, but do, so do you, do you, looking back, do you feel that way now that, you know, I know that like there was talk of there being a, you know, it was kind of the, uh, shakedown cruise. I mean, do you, do you feel that way now or do you, as a whole, do you kind of just feel like it's more of a, of a piece with the rest of the series? I, I feel it's pretty much a piece of the, you know, none of the rest of the series would have worked if we hadn't laid that track. Right. Um, and I think that you look at something like uh, the first Wonder Woman arc with Felix Faust. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a pretty strong episode. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's based on, you know, the, the classic structure of a Justice League story where they they have they had they break the team up into into different missions and then they come back together at the end and stuff like that. So, you know, that was that was really fun. The Aquaman story, I thought, was really you know, was really good. And so those were those were some early ones that we did that um, sort of showed what we could do with the series. Now, there were some that were not successful. Uh, War World was not particularly successful. Um, and the lesson that we had to learn from that one was that animation is a, a team sport and everybody has to be on the same page. And what happened with that one was that Bruce was not, not on the same page as we were. Um, the original idea of that show was to do something that was a lot more fun um, and possibly a little more goofy. Basically, if you look at um, Thor Ragnarok, mm-hmm. that one has a, a real goofy charm to it. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of what we were going for. Okay. And every time uh, we went through it, Bruce was trying to logic it out a little bit and saying, well, these guys are so strong, this wouldn't work. And so you ended up with these sort of muscle-bound guys just beating the crap out of each other in a desolate world, and that's not fun, you know? We, we were going for more of the, uh, you know, the wrestling hyperbole kind of thing, and, and I think that the tone of that show just never quite, um, quite gelled. And what happens then is when you don't get the tone right, then the audience begins to look at some of the logic things and go, hey, wait a minute. Um, whereas if they're having a good time, they'll go on the ride with you. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, you know, just as, as as you said, the the when we reviewed the, the first season, the Wonder Woman episode and the Aquaman episode mm-hmm. were two that jumped out. The Wonder Woman episode in particular was one that I was, I, you know, I remembered – liking it but it really jumped out at us it's like wow this is a really great mm-hmm. great episode uh it just it it, it just totally clicked 
and fired on on all cylinders. It was a little gem, little hidden gem because we know the Aquaman episodes great and Legends and and Secret Origins and and yeah. uh, and Savage Time and those, but uh, that was one that really really jumped out jumped out at us. So you yeah. share writing credit on on Twilight with Bruce Tim, but according to him on the commentary track, and as you said, you came to the team with the idea of using not only Darkseid, but teaming in with Brainiac. So was there any particular inspiration for that combination? I think that the idea of the way that Brainiac was set up, he was almost a Galactus type of character, a world eater. Mm-hmm. And the idea that what happens if a world eater goes to Apocalypse, um, what would happen? You know, that Darkseid would need to turn to the League for help. And I thought that was a really interesting idea. And at first, Bruce was really against the idea, uh, one, because he was for the sort of purity of the fourth world, but he didn't want to start mixing other characters into that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I made the case for it, and, and he had to agree that, yeah, like, that's a, that's a pretty good idea. <laughs> and, and this was something that I learned in dealing with Bruce. Um, he was always very passionate about everything. Um, and, and he couldn't always articulate, like, what it was he was looking for. And so if you could find an analogy of something from the comic books, from something that he liked, then he could hook into it. Um, so, for example, uh, in a late run in the Fantastic Four, there's a thing where there's a story arc where the thing gets taken to a gladiatorial ring on a foreign world. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really fun. And if I had said, uh, you know, that's what we're trying to do with Warworld, I think maybe he would have understood it better. Um, in, if, in the two, um, I wanted to do a story with Amazo, and his first reaction was, Amazo's stupid. Amazo's just a dumb character. We're not going to do Amazo. And I said, Bruce, it's the super adaptoid which was from Captain America. Mm. And he was like, oh, yeah, the super adaptoid's really cool. <laughs> so that's, that's all it took for me to get him on board. You know, <laughs> so it was learning how to communicate that to him. And so by saying, you know, hey, this is a Galactus story, he was like, okay, yeah, I want to do that. Um, but the problem that I had was that he initially insisted that it wasn't a Superman story, which mm-hmm. didn't make any sense to me at all Mm -hmm. he was like this is this is a hot girl story and i was like really we've got two of superman's biggest foes here and you want it to be a hot girl story yeah it's got to be a hot girl story and so we went through several drafts with it that way and it was good but it wasn't quite working um and finally sort of like on the last weekend before the script had to go into production he said let me take a, a shot at it and he went and you know, lightly tweaked some of the scenes um, to put the focus back onto Superman. And he said, I hope you don't mind. And I was no, I was like, no, this is what it needed all along. Mm. So, you know, we, we eventually sort of accidentally ended up with where the story needed to be. Okay. So was, was the hot girl, was that to uh, the angle being on hot girl, was that to set up, uh, to begin to set up uh, the eventual, uh, road towards Starcross was that the the idea to give her a, a, a spotlight episode? Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. And to introduce the idea, you know, of her world being out there and and where you know could they be and stuff like that. 
Well, yeah, I mean, of course, you work that aspect of it into the episode anyway, and it actually is, you know, it does, it still does uh, plants all those seeds, but then you get the very satisfying Superman dark side <laughs> uh, rematch, uh, which, of, which yeah. of course we'll get to. <laughs> yeah, and, and no, it all worked out, and that stuff is still in there. It, it, it's a question of, of tweaking the the tweaking it just a little bit, you know, it's like, let's move the focus a little over here. Let's move the focus a little over here. And, and that, and that worked. Okay. So was dark side at least partially seated as the villain to give you a chance to show Superman was no longer going to be the wimp. And in, as Bruce Tim said, is that one of the reasons you picked him? No. Um, the way this story came about was that we finished season one we weren't sure whether they were going to do a season two or not. We, we were pretty sure they were going to, but they hadn't closed the deal on it yet. And so they wanted to commission a script so that they had a um, sort of one in the bag in, in case it got picked up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this was the story that, that I pitched. And at this point, as I said, we hadn't had a chance to review what what had gone on in the first season because we hadn't seen anything back yet from it. Um, and so by the time we came back to actually do this, we had really begun to see the problems that there were with Superman. And, and I think Bruce had it forefront in his mind that he wanted to address it, but this was after the story was already underway. Gotcha. gotcha. Um, and, and sort of addressing the Superman thing. I know this is an issue for you guys. Um, (laughs) and it wasn't, it wasn't that we didn't know how to deal with Superman or even that we were really depowering him that much. If you look back at the Superman series, um, we beat the crap out of him in that series. Mm. But what made him super was that he always got back up. You know, mm-hmm. he always got back up. He fighting until he won. And that's what made him super. And um, because of the way production was, you know, we knocked him down and we robbed him of those moments of getting back up in a few places. And that's the things that people were, were reacting to and saying, you know, no, that's not, that's not super. Um, and in terms of like being hit by somebody, you know, less powerful than him. Again, we did that in the, in the animated series a lot. Uh, it's, it's sort of what I refer to as the Houdini punch. Um, I, Houdini had this trick that he did where he would, you know, tighten his, his abs and challenge people to punch him in the gut. And mm-hmm. it would be like they were hitting steel. Um, and somebody did it to him one time when he wasn't ready and yeah. it, it hurt his kidney and it killed him. Right. Exactly. So uh, it's sort of like with, it's sort of like with Superman, which is if he's braced for something, he can take a lot, but if he's surprised by it, it may knock him off his feet. He'll get back up again, but it'll knock him off his feet. Hmm. That makes sense. Well, and you guys shifting like Superman gets knocked out by somebody, but then you got to show what Hot Girl's doing, and then what Jean's doing. You don't get that moment where, like as you said, in his own show where Superman's the lone hero, you take the time to show him getting back up and throwing the next punch or reengaging. But you know that 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 totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, and part of it was a storyboard problem as well, in that um, that the scripts would the action but we had such good storyboard artists that that we kept it looser than than in some other series 
And sometimes the storyboard artists would go to town to, to make things happen. Uh, and it wasn't just with Superman. I mean, there was one where there was a, they were a little short on time and they said, well, there's this scene where Flash is trace, chasing a truck. Let's elongate that chase, which was exciting, but it made no sense because Flash should be able to catch up with that truck. There were some things like with Superman that, that happened with the other heroes as well, where you're, where it just didn't quite work because the storyboard artist was, was riffing a little bit too much. Like I said, animation is a team sport. Everybody's got to be on the same page. So um, I'm, not, I'm not blaming the storyboard artists. I'm just saying the sort of things that happen and that when we saw everything come together, then we were saying, okay, this is something we can correct. Uh-huh. Right, right. So we see when Darkseid arrives on the Watchtower, Superman's instantly, instantly on edge. Um, Darkseid's looking for help, but he refuses refuses to help him against Brainiac. Did you enjoy pushing the character like this? Because all the all the other Justice Leaguers go, you know, and re- gasp in disbelief that Superman's refusing to help this guy. Yeah, and and I've got to say that like. The, the revisionist history on this is that, you know, like, oh, this was Bruce saying that we needed to, to go and toughen Superman up and everything like that. But as I said, this was written before we had sort of gotten to that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went back and looked at the original outline and that stuff is all in there. So, you know, we knew that that was how the right way to play that scene. Oh, yeah. Based on what Darkseid did to him in the, the Superman animated episode you wrote. Yeah, that's that's the reaction anybody would have, I think. Uh, it's totally yeah. it's totally understandable, uh, even from Superman. But it's yeah, it, it, it's uh, yeah, it was totally satisfying. Um, now, Superman and Batman have some great antagonistic moments in this story. You know, Batman even brings up how Darkseid used Superman to his face. You co-wrote the world's finest episodes where Superman and Batman met in the animated universe. Were you fond of that uh, quote-unquote post-crisis dynamic where Superman and Batman weren't the the old the chummy uh, you know Silver Age versions anymore? Oh yeah, I mean I think that one of the things that that the DC animated universe did really well was that they were able to sort of cherry pick the history of the DC comic books and, and come up, use the, the best iterations along the way. And, and those earlier world's finest stories where they're chums is just like they were two generic heroes. And so from us, for our standpoint, it was really important to, um, you know, differentiate these characters. They're both heroes, but they're heroes in different ways. And, and how does that reflect itself? Okay. So, you know, as far as the heroes and everything else, you know, Superman I always see in outer space, but with Batman, he's always been previously grounded on Earth. Was there any trepidation about taking him into space and mixing him with the new gods and things of that nature? Yes, absolutely there was. And, um, but I think that, again, by this point in the series, we had seen uh, Batman and Gorilla City. Um, we had seen him, you know, interact with some things that were sort of outside the thing. So by, by this point where we didn't take him into outer space in the, in the first, uh, Green Lantern two-parter, um, we felt a little more comfortable with him. And basically I think we said, how can we tell this story without him? Okay. 
So the creators began seeding Hot Girl's eventual betrayal heavily. And you also wrote the payoff, which is, of course, the season two finale, Starcrossed, was including these moments of particular importance to you throughout the season. Did you want to make sure you got that in? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we knew what our end point was with that, um, even at the beginning of season one. That's what I was going to ask you. How far ahead do you plan? You're like, okay, I know I want to get from this point to this point, and I've got to make sure to drop these particular breadcrumbs. (laughs) Yeah, um... We, we we certainly were mindful of that along the way. And, and the idea of Hawkgirl being the traitor, um, I think, was something that was discussed with Paul Levitz early on. And he, mm-hmm. he thought it was a, a good idea. So we had DC's blessing um, from the get-go on that. Um, and so the, the tricky part was that we had to sort of not tip our hand. I mean, we knew what we were doing, but nobody else knew what we were doing. Right, 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 right. In, including Maria Canals, who was very surprised. Oh, oh wow. Okay. <laughs> so when did she find out? When she got the script for Starcrossed? Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, the, the thing is that you don't want, you don't want them playing things differently, you know? Right, right. And even their delivery so, of the line, how they would act the scene would be different if they knew what that end point is. You right, know? right. Yeah. So you guys, you guys kind of pulled a with like a Empire Strikes Back, where Mark Hamill was the only one. They took him aside and said, "Hey, he's going to say, you know, Darth Vader, I'm your, I'm your father, right? You know, the same, the same kind of thing." Well, <laughs> kind of like the whole thing is, you know, J.K. Rowling took Snape aside in the first movie and said, "Hey, at the end of it, this is what's going to happen," and that's what colored his acting throughout the whole thing. He knew what the payoff was. Oh, so was he did be. know. He knew. Even before the books came out. Even before the books came oh. out, he knew what was going to happen. And oh. that's why you have, you know. Mm. So that would have that kind of changed. So that was, yeah, that, and I, if I, if I remember right, didn't you guys, when you put out the press material, didn't you make sure you had like a kind of fake backstory for hot girl in the, yep. the press kit? Yeah. <laughs> yep, we sure did. I mean, it was in the Bible, and we knew that the Bible would get out and circulate, and so we, we did not want that. Yeah, so we, we made a cover story. Wow, that's awesome. So yeah. you, guys, you guys really, I mean, it's like it's like the, uh, the her cover story in the show, like, permeated into the real world. It's yeah. <laughs> so meta. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we actually get to visit New Genesis and Supertown. I don't, I don't think he has ever called Supertown mm-hmm. in the episode, but uh, we spend time with High Father and Light Ray. So was this a goal of yours to give them more screen time beyond the simple cameos that you had probably helped engineer before? Yeah, absolutely. I, I really, you know, those those great Kirby designs, and uh, I thought it was a really interesting world that we hadn't explored. And some of the earlier drafts had even more stuff on New Genesis. Um, so, um, I, you know, I was really happy to get that on, on the screen, and, you know, I think it adds to the scope of the story. So, and it, yeah, it was fun to, to have... To have Light Ray and, and High Father have, have, um, you know, significant parts in it. Um, and, and to show that they weren't perfect as well. Um, in Apocalypse Now, we had to sort of shortcut that whole mythology thing by basically lifting the description directly out of the first issue of New Gods and, mm-hmm. and putting it in the mother box voice. Um, 
just to tell people what this world was. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Cause you guys got into the class, the class, you got into the class, well, you got into the class system of, of yeah. Genesis through Forger and, 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 and Orion was initially very dismissive of him. So I, I guess you felt this theme was important to, to showcase with these characters. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That this world was more complex than, than, you know, just a bunch of gods sitting up on their golden thrones. So now got a question for you. <laughs> I know it's off screen, but it is obvious from her reaction and the sound effect that Light Ray slaps Wonder Woman on the rear end. Was that in the script? <laughs> um, I think the way it was described in the script was that he pokes her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you both would. Uh-huh. Sure. It was, but well, it makes sense from Light Ray, right? <laughs> yeah. It, no, I mean, it's it's more her reaction, which is she can't believe that this actually just happened. True, right, true. Yeah. Oh, no, it's 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 funny. It's, it is. It's it a is. lot of fun. It, it, it is kind of funny, though, because the little, the little look on her face and... and like, you touched my butt! The Susan Eisenberg's uh, vocal reaction to it was great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I think it was, it was designed to be a little bit of a shocking moment, but also mm-hmm. sort of... Um, it was good for the characters. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's too bad. The flash wasn't on this episode because him and I think him and light ray might've got along. Oh, they would have been chums. Yeah. <laughs> Most Absolutely. Definitely. <laughs> <sighs> like any good uh, and, uh, year old. Light, ray, light ray was, was voiced by Rob Paulson who also does pinky. Um, oh. but he, he has, um, a, a really, a really good fun delivery. He's also, you know, the Ninja Turtles uh, has been in all the iterations of Ninja Turtles. So he's got that sort of cocky devil may care vibe that he puts across really well. Right. Right. So did dark side actually break Orion's back? I think so. Was that in the script? I think so. <laughs> I mean, I was, uh, it's obvious that he's injured, but I didn't know if he went to actually going to break his back to that far, to that extent. Well, um, I can't remember what the script said exactly, but, um, you know, the idea that, uh, that dark side would do that to his son, mm-hmm. um, seemed pretty powerful. Right. Yeah. So, uh, and the sound effects certainly make you cringe. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, it's very well, yeah, it's very, very well handled. Yeah. So now we get to the big moment, Superman versus Darkseid, round two. Uh, Bruce Timm has said he pushed the dialogue here, including adding Superman's line about Darkseid being a greasy smear on my fist. What did you think of, of these changes? Uh, for the most part, I was... Like I said earlier, I was very pleased with them because it brought the focus of the story back to where it needed to be. Um, the greasy smear on my fist made me cringe a little bit. Um, but, you know, I I trusted that it would work out. And it certainly is something that's been discussed a lot. So I think it's something that made an impression. And, uh, you know, I can't really I can't really complain about that, you know. It, mm-hmm. it, 
Um, everybody who worked on this show, there was a lot of arguing back and forth, a lot of discussion, but it was always with the notion of how do we make this the best show that we can. Mm-hmm. And so those those arguments were very heated sometimes, but they always resolved with, I think we got the best version that we could out of um, the particular stories that we were trying to uh, to tell. And I know that, like, uh, um, the composers, uh, Lolita Ritmanis and Chris Carter and Mike McQuistian, um, are just the sweetest people in the world. They are so nice, and they would work on, on putting these things together and bring in their scores, and Bruce would listen to them and go, that sounds like crap. Oh. And it's, it's like, um, then when you would sort of, probe him a little bit further um you'd find out that it was like well there's just this one one section here that that isn't what he had in mind or something like that and you fix that and then he's fine with it and it was the same thing with writing scripts you know that you'd you'd come in with something and you go ah this is awful and and it turns out that it's just like there was one line that was rubbing in the wrong way and you you get that that it passed there and then and then everybody's happy so you, you can't have a thin skin um and it's all for the for the good of the show. Did, did you kind of over time figure out what Bruce would would uh, like and what he wouldn't like? Uh, uh, you know, after after working with him on all the, on several different shows, I I, I certainly um, I think I knew what his likes and dislikes were, um, and so you know, every once in a while you walk into a trap where <laughs> where. You, catches you by surprise but um but as i said like if i was able to make a comparison to something that he was familiar with um that would that would smooth things over and and one thing that again this was a very ambitious show and there were some things going on behind the screen the scenes that um made it even more difficult which was there had been a change while we were in pre-production there was a change in management uh, at Warner Brothers, and Gene McCurdy left, um, and a new management team came in, and their idea was that we were making these things better than they needed to be, and so they cut back our resources, and so whereas on Superman and Batman and Batman Beyond, we had a staff of six writers, um, we were only budgeted for two on on Justice League. So here we're doing something that's way harder than, uh, than what we were before. And, uh, and we didn't have the resources available. And so in the second season, we were able to bring, uh, Dwayne McDuffie and, and that, that helped a lot. Um, but the first season we were relying on freelance writers and, and just (laughs) were spread very thin um, and the same thing that happened with the composers was that they cut the budget by two thirds um, and they needed to find ways to do this sort of epic score kind of on a much less uh, um, generous budget. And luckily, the technology was just arriving at that point where they could do sampling and it wouldn't sound like a Super Nintendo game, um, you know, the and but there were times when I could sort of feel like the lack of warmth in the scores because it wasn't being performed by a live orchestra. Um, but for the most part, you know, 
I have no complaints. It, it all came out looking fabulous. Was I, and this is something that just now. I mean, we we talked about this on the you know when we first started talking about the series, but the transition from uh, the kids WB to Cartoon Network did that have any effect on the direction of the show or or what you could and couldn't do or budgets or anything like that? Not really. The um, Cartoon Network had never done a scripted half hour show before, and so they didn't know sort of how to react to the scripts when they came in. Um, everything else that they had, you know, all of their sort of Cartoon Network stuff had been done in board. Mm. Um, and so they could look at pictures and go, oh, yeah, I understand what this was. And suddenly we were throwing scripts at them. Um, but they were very supportive. They were just sort of like, you guys know what you're doing. Do what you do best. And uh, and we had a pretty free hand. Um, Yay for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they Cartoon Network was great. I mean, I think the biggest problem that we had from a financial standpoint was mm-hmm. that they didn't have a toy deal in place in the first season. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there wasn't that sort of secondary income stream coming in. Um, and that, that was a problem. Mm, okay. Yeah. Cause I think, I think if I remember right, that's was during that transition when Hasbro lost the DC license and Mattel got it is when justice league first came out. So they, they I remember everybody, yeah. where are the action figures? Because we're, yeah. I'm, an, I'm an action figure guy. And everybody was like, how can there be a justice league cartoon when there's no action figures? We've had all these Batman and Superman figures for, since 1992, where are our Justice League figures? And it ended up being like, I guess, late uh, 2002 or something before they started actually showing up. So, And how cool is it that there's now an action figure of Forager? Yeah. They oh, made, yeah. They, so, you know. they made a figure of Forager, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So, I love that stuff. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I've got a whole shelf just dedicated to the animated Justice League stuff. Um so getting back to the actual uh, episode of Twilight was was in in your draft your initial draft I know you said it changed from initially being Superman focused then to Hot Girl and back to Superman but was Superman as hell bent on ending Darkseid's threat as as in the finished version in, in your initial version? Yeah, yeah, I believe so. Yes, he was. Well, that makes sense. I mean, it, like we said, I, I totally, I totally can. It's natural reaction. It's a natural I mean, it reaction. Seems, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, that, that's what's so great about this is you guys did all that setup before. You just put Darkseid in front of him, and I mean, boom. I mean, it was just, yeah, and I, I really find it amazing that Bruce Timm didn't want to use Darkseid on Justice League. I'm I like, know. what? <laughs> Thank you for doing this. <laughs> yes. like, for bringing him in. <laughs> Thank you for picking that up. Yes, yes, so. definitely. Um, so, getting, I got to ask this question: the heat vision through the foot bit. Whose idea was that? I honestly don't remember. Uh, I remember looking at the board and thinking it was cool, um, and I, I think it was in the original outline, but I can't swear to it. Wow. That's so, it's such a, it's such a, I mean, it's a moment everybody always remembers Yeah. that, you know, the, he's smashing his head into the pavement and then the little dots appear and then <laughs> boom. <laughs> Did you guys get any? It was so well stayed. Yeah. yeah. Did you get any kickback on, on that from uh, broadcast standards or anybody? No. Okay. Like I said, Cartoon Network was pretty cool about things. So um, we had a lot of freedom there. 
And and I think that because it aired in primetime mm-hmm. um, initially, that it wasn't it wasn't under as sort of strict broadcast standards rules as uh, Superman and Batman had. Okay. Now, in the episode, Orion gets swept away in the boom tube. Was that in the script, or did somebody decide at the last minute to make sure he survived? Uh, again, I don't have a specific memory of that detail. I, I my my recollection is that it was in the script. It may be that they uh, that in board that they said, "Hey, he's lying around here. Are we going to leave him here?" But I, I suspect that we cleaned up that loose end in the script. Yeah, I I was just I was just curious. The reason I asked that and the put that down in the questions was just uh, you know that's the type of thing that could be. Oh, hey, like you said, he's laying there. We better we better make sure he's uh, he's gets out of here so we can use him later. Of course, you did have the scene with him with High Father uh, later too. So that. Uh, of course, that would, wouldn't have happened if you hadn't got him out of there. So, now was yeah exactly was was Dark Side considered off the table after this? Was he was he dead as far as as the staff was concerned? Well, he wasn't dead, but we were not eager to do another uh, Dark Side story right away. Um, I mean, first of all, how do you top that? Right. Um, and we sort of felt like we had done what we needed to do with dark side for the moment. Um, you know, obviously when they got into uh, justice league unlimited that they needed, uh, they needed to, um, you know, revisit that. And, and so, no, but I was very happy with where we left the, the dark side thing in, in justice league. Oh yeah. Yeah. What about uh brainiac? Was he uh, also, um, kind of uh, off the board for a while, no, no plans to, to come back to him? There, you know, there was no edict that said we're not going to use uh, Darkseid or Brainiac anymore. It was just a question of whether or not there was a story that we were excited about that would utilize them. And we had a bunch of other ideas that we wanted to explore. And so um, we didn't come back to them. So... Overall, how do you feel about the final product? Did you did the finished story, the acting, the animation jive up with what you had envisioned? Oh, you know, that's one of the things that was a joy about this show is that the final product always was way better than than what you envisioned. That everybody plussed it along the way. Um, it just got better and better um, at each step. And so, you know, I remember watching the rough cuts of it and just being giddy, you know, it's just like, wow, that's amazing. So, um, no, I have, I have nothing but, but good thoughts in terms of like how, how these things ended up. So as far as, you know, the product and stuff like that, do you get to set in on the actors recordings at any point? I, yes, I was in all of the, every single recording and, you know, in the booth and making notes on lines and doing rewrites. And, um, yeah, I was very intimately involved in that process. So let me ask you this, and this goes back to something you said before. Um, Maria Canales didn't know that she was the traitor until she was handed that script. What was her reaction? I mean, this is just a curiosity. <laughs> I mean, what did she think about that? Because a lot of times actors have an affinity to the character they portray, did she feel like 
okay, you know, what was her reaction? Oh, she was, well, first of all, she was like, oh my God, I'm being written out of the series. Oh. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, I mean, she literally, her jaw dropped when she, when she read it. And, and it was like, really? This is what we're doing? And we're like, yeah, so, sorry, Maria. <laughs> but then she embraced it and she was like, she realized what a great acting opportunity it was. Right, right. And, and, you know, if that had been the last that we'd seen of Hawkgirl, what a great send off it would have been for her. Right. Yeah. So you were in the booth through the whole series. I've got to ask, was there any, uh, and I mean, you guys had a, Course, wonderful voice cast. Oh my Andrea gosh. Romano, the, like the best casting director, like ever, as far you know, or, or one of the best, if not the best. So, it, was there any particular guest uh, that that you just were like, I can't believe we got this person, and your jaw hit the floor when they walked in the door? Uh, not a particular one. I mean, it was just like uh, it was just like waiting to see who was going to walk in the door because you knew it was going to be somebody amazing. And, you know, there were times when, uh, when it would be somebody who you'd seen, seen on TV the night before, you know, it was, it was amazing. Um, I remember I had seen, uh, Rene Aubergenois, uh, on something the night before and the next day he came in and I said, you know, Oh, I just saw you on this show last night. I thought you gave a great performance. And he, he got into this whole philosophical thing about whether the performance was, was past or present in, in terms like that. So it was a <laughs> funny conversation <laughs> and yeah, so it was, it was fun. Very cool. Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine just, uh, this, the, the talent pool that through the years on the, the animated series, the, the the actors that have that contributed to the voices it's just it's just amazing i don't know i still think about that we met kevin conroy about two years ago at a comic con and we took our then you know andrew's 18 now but this is when he was 16 or 17 and he's deep in the oh you know i'm too cool da, 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 da. as soon as that kids met kevin conroy and he opened his mouth that kid was eight years old again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was awesome. <laughs> and, and Kevin is such a sweet guy. He's just the nicest guy in the world. And so it's, it's, it's great when, when fans have interaction with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we had a nice little moment where him and Lauren Lester were actually signing next to each other. And I had the action figure of Robin for Lauren Lester to sign and, and Kevin Conroy was signing my Batman. And he just picked up the Robin and started signing it. And then he's like, and I can't, I'm not going to try to do Kim, but he's like, well, that's not me. That's Robin, you know, and I, <laughs> it was, and then Lord Lester, like, is like, Hey man, are you signing my action figure? And he's like, I'm sorry. You know, let's say we got this wonderful Batman and Robin and it's like, you know, this moment and then they, they hugged each other and yeah. I mean, we got this great, it, it was fantastic. I'm like, Oh, I'm so glad Kevin Conroy accidentally signed the wrong action figure. Cause we got this great little interaction with them. I mean, you got to work with them every day, but for, for yeah, us, it was, it was, great. It, was it was wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> so going back to dark side with the success of the MCU films, Thanos, who was initially a fairly thinly veiled riff on dark side, he's now pretty much usurped his place in pop culture, at least to non-comic reading fans. Uh, any thoughts on that in particular? Um, well, I don't have an issue with that particularly. I think they, they both, they both have their, their, 
their places in their respective universes. I mean, I was I was a huge fan of uh, Jim Starlin's work at Marvel uh, during the seventies, and I just thought that the stuff that he did with Thanos was amazing. So the fact that they've actually like put that on the screen uh, in in a big movie franchise just thrills me to death. Mm-hmm. I don't think it it decreases. Um, I don't think it decreases um, Dark Side at all because Dark Side is awesome in his own right. Mm-hmm. And at some point, uh, at some point, DC hopefully will will do a version that uh, that does him justice uh, in a live action form. But they're not there yet. Right. Right. <laughs> oh yeah, no complaints about the interpretation of Thanos from from us because we we love those movies. But uh, just just thought I'd ask. Um, so we we discussed earlier many of the seeds that you helped plant in these episodes. They grew into further plot lines in in uh, Justice League Unlimited, like the elements of Legacy with Supergirl that influenced the Cadmus arc. Darkseid eventually returned, combined with elements of Brainiac. So so how did you feel about when when these later uh, when these seeds uh, the seeds you planted grew? What did you think of uh, the end result? Um, I I can't really talk a lot about that because by the time justice league uh unlimited had came around i had moved on but i recognized that none of that would have been possible had it not had we not done that that Mm -hmm. sort of groundwork and so i was happy that you know that we had created a universe that was rich enough that that um they could explore you know new corners of it and stuff like that and tell other great stories and so i have a lot of pride in that Right. Yeah. And I, I, in particular, when those elements came back up, it was a nice little reward for the fans who'd been following it all along that, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, Oh, I remember when this happened. This, Mm -hmm. this happened. You know, Professor Hamilton had Supergirl in his lab in, in, in the legacy episode. Yeah. So yeah, it was great. (laughs) We had discussed doing something like the uh, Cadmus. Uh, even as as early as season one, and it was just sort of one of those things that we had put on the back burner, and oh. so you know, oh. got around to it. It was it was the right time to tell the story, and the thing is that like all the people who worked on this show were huge comic book fans and had a great love of the characters, and it's that love of the characters that um, I think translates to the screen that that we really honor what what the core of those those. Um, legends were about right exactly and, and you guys like you said you, you you all did a fabulous job of taking the different elements from the different eras and like cherry picking what would work best in in your medium and and and, and blending it all together in a very satisfying uh you know concoction i mean really i mean you know the dc animated universe is the the it's favorite. the best. It's yes. the fa- it's, it's our the personal favorite version of the DC universe, and a lot of people's. And it's it's you guys. It's because of the love you guys had for the material mm-hmm. and how you were able to filter it through and your the medium. respect that you have for the characters. Exactly. Which unfortunately, is sadly lacking in the current comic. <laughs> soapbox. Said, soapbox. Sorry. 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 <laughs> sorry. <laughs> The views of Chris and Cindy don't not necessarily match the views of Rich Vogel. I'll just put that. <laughs> well, the, the thing is, the thing is, I mean, I the comic books. I, I have a lot of respect for the people who do that because 
the amount of material that they have to generate is staggering in order to sort of feed that machine. And so in our approach from it, we read all the versions of these characters and stuff like that. And it was sort of like, how do you scrape the barnacles off and, and get it down to like the, the core, most pure version of it. Mm-hmm. And we weren't, we weren't constrained by all of these different uh, continuities and things. Whereas the, the comic book people, uh, you know, do have to consider all of those things. And so we have some freedom that they don't have. That's true. Yeah. You guys basically got to create your own version of the, of the DC universe as you went along. So without the constraint of, of, of a monthly, of a monthly, uh, all these other monthly titles going on to, to have to adhere to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So since Justice League, you've written episodes of Crypto the Superdog, which is so cute. Andrew loved that when he was a little boy. <laughs> uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Ben 10, another favorite, Transformers the Animated, Ultimate Spider-Man, Guardians of the Galaxy, and very recently, Young Justice. How did it feel to return to the DCU? Oh, it felt great to return to it. Um, and I think that Young Justice is, is a wonderful take on, on these characters. And, and yet it's, it's way different from what we were doing. And so I had to, you know, be careful that I didn't put my, put it through my lens. I had to sort of really sort of look at it through, through the eyes of what the Justice League, uh, thing was. At, as being different from Young Justice and really focus in on the Young Justice and, and try and tell it uh, in that universe. And, you know, that was very satisfying. But it's nice It's nice to be reunited with your old friends as well. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, Rich, I, we just want to thank you so much for joining us on JLU Cast uh, and for listening, as we said, and supporting the show commenting as you have it's it's i mean when when i when i got a comment from you you can ask cindy i was just gobsmacked that <laughs> rich fogel commented on the episode oh my gosh you called me at work yeah, yeah i did <laughs> <laughs> and I, I mean he called me and i'm a public librarian with schools i had like 30 kids sitting in front of me doing a program and i'm like what's going on what, is, what are you calling What's going on? And it's like Rich Focal comment. <laughs> he wrote the episode. He commented. It's like then I felt like you know it's like for us even being the the you know I I, I felt so even if we were the my, li, uh, slightest bit critical I'm like I feel really bad now because he listened to our episode. Oh I know. And, and, you, like, and, and who am I to to, to criticize you? <laughs> no, you guys you guys make you make. You make I'm very sorry, I still point. stand by the alien and sunlight oh, statement. Alien and sunlight I, I'm, I'm sorry, I do, though. I stand by that statement. Oh, go ahead, Rich. I'm sorry. What were you going to say? <laughs> no, that's all right. Um, it's, uh, no, I, I think I think the points that you that you make are valid. And, you know, we put these things out in the world, and it's nice to hear, like, how people react to it. And so that's what's fun about listening to your show. Well, all I have to say is, seriously, you gave our son a huge part of his childhood. You really did. Right, yeah. And top of me, too, in my never-ending childhood. I know, I know. <laughs> but, I'm so, you know, our son was born in 2001, so he grew up watching this. I mean, this oh, is yeah. what was on mm-hmm. in our house. Yeah, even so. before he really could comprehend what was going on, just yeah, the, the visuals. Yeah. And then he went back and watched it over the years. And yeah. So, yeah, it's definitely, your work is definitely seminal 
uh, here in the Franklin household. <laughs> yeah, and that's what he's playing. He graduates high school this year, and he's hoping to go in to animation when he goes to college. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, it's it's been it's a, been a great honor to have you on the show. Absolutely. Uh, can you tell the listeners what you're working on now? Uh, no, I I have a NDA. Okay. Uh, non disclosure yeah. agreement. Okay. Um, but I am busy. Um, and there will be. Interesting things coming down the pike. Well, that's awesome. Also, we just need to keep our our uh, our ears peeled, as it were, to uh, to to hear what's what's next coming from you. I definitely do not want to ask you to reveal anything, and I know you can't, but I just think that's exciting. I do. What is it? What is it? No, don't you? No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, is there any way that uh, other fans can interact with you online on uh, social media or anything? Uh, I'm not real active on social media, so, um, I mean, I do have, like, a, a Facebook writer's page that people can do, but I don't update it very often. Um, so, no, I'm, I'm, I'm busy, uh, which is good, and, uh, you know, I, I've been hoping at this point that I would be retired and maybe be able to go out to cons more often and meet the fans and stuff mm-hmm. like that, but uh, luckily people keep hopping. See, um, you know, good problem to have, huh? Exactly. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, I did. I did uh, take a little time to write a uh, novel, oh. um, which is available on Amazon called "A Diamond and Rough," and it's a retelling of the Snow White story set in the world of minor league baseball in the 1950s. Ooh. So, how when did it come out? Uh, came out about three years ago, four years ago, something like that. Who's your, who's the house? This is, um, it's, it's published through Amazon, so. Okay, okay. Well, there you go. There's a book anyway, to get for the um, <laughs> Is it adult? Can you give adult? me some, uh, yeah, young adult. Oh, um, so that's in my information. <laughs> I can, I can send you a copy. I mean, because, you know, like I said, I, I do everything birth through 18. So that's my whole, you know, I live in a small enough town. I do it all. So. Yeah. Now you're now you're speaking her language. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, awesome. uh, give, give me your contact information. And I'll send you a copy. OK. Oh, awesome. That would be great. Much appreciated. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I think I think that'll do it, Rich. Again, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to take a quick break and then we come back with some of our Usual jail UCAS features and listener feedback. Okay, awesome. Born and raised to make a kill, she was not given her own will. Her first hit left her feeling only disdain. She ran to Gotham's no man's land, learned from Barbara Gordon's hand. This starts the legacy of Cassandra Kane. Rising from the devastation of no man's land, a new warrior joined the Bat family. Daughter of David Kane and Lady Shiva, trained from birth to be the ultimate killer, but choosing instead to save lives. She's been Batgirl, Black Bat, and Orphan. She is Cassandra Kane. 
Join Mike Staley as he goes through every appearance of one of DC's most underrated characters in Silent Night, the Cassandra Kane podcast. On iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and at silentnight.podomatic.com. Which is the hottest Marvel character? Iron Man. Eight Man. I can't decide between Professor X and Magneto, so both. Loki. Is Wolverine Marvel? What about uh, White Tiger? What about uh, White Tiger? Uh, <laughs> Doc Samson. Who's Star Fox. That's a video game. <laughs> the girls go on a journey to determine every Marvel character's hotness in Ohatmu or Not, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe podcast you didn't know you wanted. Available on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Okay, we're back, and there is no way to top our discussion with Rich Fogel, so we'll just wrap up coverage on Twilight with our usual feature segments. But before we get to those, a few things to point out in the episode that didn't come up in the synopsis or our discussion with Rich. As we pointed out in our coverage of Comfort and Joy in December, Superman has a new design closer to the original Superman the Animated Series look, and that debuts here. Superman looks much younger looking and less tired. The mm-hmm. prominent cheekbones and baggy eyes are gone. Big improvement, yes? Yes, most definitely. Yeah, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad they made that change. Unfortunately, like... Almost none of the marketing and action figures changed. They didn't bother no. redoing it. Yeah, Mm-mm. yeah, it stayed. Yeah, Darkseid also gets a facelift. He's much more straight, Kirby in his design, with all the craggy cracks and deeper shadows around his eyes. Tim said some folks asked him if Darkseid was scarred from the end of Legacy. You know, where Superman put his hands over his right. eyes when he did the Omega effect, and he said you can read that into it if you want, but that wasn't the, the intention. intention. The yeah. intention was just to go more straight, Kirby. So, oddly enough, Darkseid got a similar makeover on the Superpower series, which Rich Fogel, of course, worked on as well. Mm-hmm. But everyone got an overhaul in that final season where their designs look like Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Mm-hmm. Artwork. Yes. Uh, when Superman shows up to fight Darkseid, an epic version of the Superman animated series is used. It's fantastic. It's oh, a, yeah. Da, 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 da. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, it's bombastic. Like, yeah, it's bombastic, but it's like slow and just kind of like, but it's bombastic, but it's like stretched out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and he's like, and guess what? You're going with it. You know, just like, mm-hmm. it's just like, dun, dun, dun. I mean, it's awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mr. Miracle and the Forever People, Big Bear, Beautiful Dreamer, Viking, Seraphan, and Mark Moonrider are seen among the survivors on New Genesis. The Forever People were recently featured on Zoom's Done in One Wonders podcast wonder show. Mm-hmm. So uh, so they've been getting a lot of network exposure here lately, and Rob just loves them. Loves the Forever People. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I heard that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the word on the street. That's right. And uh, the Superman animated series episode Apocalypse Now, Light Ray, Mr. Miracle, Big Barda, and Metron are shown backing Orion up when they show up to stop Darkseid's mm-hmm. invasion of Earth at the end, but they didn't have any speaking parts there or here, but Mr. Miracle and Barda will be spotlight characters in an episode of JLU down the line, and mm-hmm. we will also get the return of Orion, voiced by Ron Perlman again. So, yeah, apparently his back gets better at some point. Yeah. So now on to the special features. Power action feature. So for power action feature, what do you think is the power action feature in this episode? I would, I mean, I would honestly say Superman's heat vision through his <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a ton of awesome moments in this episode. You know, John using Brainiac as a gun, 
to the the big haymaker Superman gives Darkseid when he plows him through the ceiling. But yeah, it's there's no doubt it's the heat vision through the foot. Right. I mean that's that's one of those oh, you know can't believe they did that moment. Yeah, rotating chairperson. Who who would you give rotating chairperson to this time? It's one of those things. It's got to be Superman, and Batman's ticked off because he's like, "Well, I'm supposed to be in charge," but Superman's like, "Dude, I told you, I know what's going on here." So you know, in this in this instance, Batman is wrong. <laughs> he might be fa- have to Fonzie it, but he's wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 got to be Superman. He's not exactly the best team player in this episode. No, but he takes charge, and we've been waiting so much, and I. And I know Rich, you know, Rich just kind of schooled us on, well, the reason why Superman right. wasn't quite as super, uh, and, you know, and I think there's something, something to that. I didn't want to, I didn't want to bring up my theory about Superman to him because I was like, no, because this guy's, you know, Rich is an actual accomplished writer and I'm just some guy doing a podcast. You're I'm, schmo. I'm a schmo doing a podcast. But, uh, but yeah, um, yeah, you got to, you got to give it to Superman here. And it's kind of funny because this idea of Superman not trusting a former foe and and knowing something's going on, this will repeat and be very important in the first two seasons of Justice mm-hmm. League Unlimited. And and at some point you're like, wow, why is Superman acting like this? But in the end, he's right. Mm-hmm. And Superman's right here too, so. <laughs> yep. Yep. Justice League Communicator. Justice League Communicator. So, I mean, there's a ton of great lines in this one. Anything that jumps out at you? No, I mean, there was just too many to pick from. Right, yeah. I mean, I, I think one of them, one of my favorite ones was Batman's, like when Batman and Wonder Woman arrive with Orion and, you know, they're fighting all the Brainiacs. Batman's like, having fun? Yes. <laughs> just so you know, that's funny. But, you you, you know, Superman's going to have to sweep these categories. I mean, the greasy smear line. Yeah. I mean, that that's it's a bit controversial, even amongst the creators we found out. But it, it's got to be it because it's very memorable. Oh, it's yeah. not the most memorable SmackDown line Superman will ever have to Darkseid. Right. I, yeah. I mean, I got to say that this is part one and part two is a bit better, but we got to give it to this one for now. Comic connections. Comic connections. This whole thing is a comic connection. I mean, I guess there are a few nods to the Cosmic Odyssey miniseries that uh, Jim Starlin and Mike Mignola did. Uh, in the late 80s, uh, especially with the with Forger being an important part of this story. But overall, it's a love letter to Jack Kirby's Fourth World. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's it's basically, you know, it's, it, yeah, that's, that's exactly what it is. Not-so-Superman count. We come to the not-so-Superman count. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think, for the most part, it's time to retire this feature. I do, too. I y- think, you know. Yeah, I think Superman... So thoroughly dominated this episode like a boss. He erased all our quibbles from season one in, in one episode. Yep, yep. <laughs> so, I mean, even the part where he's like holding that force field open and Darkseid like shoots that laser beam like right underneath his crotch. Through right. his leg right underneath his crotch. <laughs> Woo. <laughs> I'm sure Lois wouldn't have appreciated that. Right. <laughs> Sorry, that was bad. Bad, bad, bad. I just slapped her on the hand, y'all. She held her hand out. That's all I did. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, you know, it, you know, like we said, if, if, uh, you know, Rich, Rich explained that, you know, they had to cut away from Superman to show what the others were doing. And then also, if you don't like that, you can go with like the theory I had that Superman was holding back because he didn't want to lose control or he felt guilty for what 
had happened. happened. He's, yeah. he's still be let himself be punished. But maybe Dark Side showing up just finally just he saw Dark Side again and it all just clicked back. You know, yeah, back to being Super Superman. Hot Girl Magic Mace Meter. Uh, Hot Girl Magic Mace Meter. I didn't really see anything in this one that particularly stood out to me. You know, this we might have to retire this one too. I mean, it's, right. there's nothing out of left field here, and I think we'll eventually get a little more. We'll find out a little bit more what Hot Girl's mace is made out of, so it'll won't you know we won't have as many quibbles, and I don't think she's going to be just you know taking out the the beam from Starkiller base again. So no, no. yeah, that was the that was the real one from last year, as we pointed out in our wrap up episode. Electricity is evil. So electricity is evil. I I I guess you could count Superman getting fried by Brainiac, you know, when he's in the conduit thing, but I mean Dark Side. You know, was there and it was their plan, and it's those two working together. So it's not like an electrified grate that Deadpool, Deadpool, I said Deadpool, <laughs> that Deadshot set up. Right. You know, uh, yeah, that's a little bit different. This is crypto, plus it's Kryptonian technology. So, yeah. Or it could be other alien technology. So, yeah, we'll give it, we'll give him that. It's not like he stuck his finger in a light socket and it knocked him over or something. So. Okay, that'll do it for our features, and uh, so let's roll straight into our feedback, which uh, we covered last time. We covered the Superman Dark Side feud on Superman the Animated Series. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this episode's running a bit long. We'll just concentrate on the comments left at FireAndWaterPodcast.com. Thanks to everyone who liked and shared the episode on social media, though. We really appreciate you spreading the word. Let's get into what folks had to say on uh, FireAndWaterPodcast.com. Okay. Symbol Pending says, good episode as normal, and I look forward to season two of JL. Although JLU is more my jam for obvious reasons. That Superman comic was actually one of the first of his I remember where I first met Barda and Soups, I guess. And it somehow didn't scar me too much. That was the uh, John Byrne, you know, Superman and Barda make a porno uh, comic. So I'm glad that didn't scar you too bad. And of course, it makes sense that Symbol Penning would like uh, JLU better because they get that that's a... They run a Power Girl blog and that's the Symbol Pending thing, you know, no yeah. Power Girl symbol. And... We do get a de facto Power Girl in the form of Galatea, and those episodes were set up in our last episode right. we talked about in uh, in Legacy, so that's cool. Gold Dragon 71 says, so Lois and Superman become a couple in this? Did she ever learn he was Clark? The fact that she wasn't at the Kents for holidays and comfort and joy makes me think she doesn't. Yeah, um, that's really kind of strange. It's like Superman and Lois kiss at the end of Legacy, but then their relationship really doesn't really change that much. It's like, you know, she doesn't find out he's Clark. And mm-hmm. She's not in, she's in several episodes, but she's not like a huge part of any particular Justice League episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving forward, she, you know, she does show up from time to time. It's still Dana Delaney, which is great. But uh, they don't really take the time to develop their relationship any further, which is, which is kind of a shame, honestly. But Brian Rosen says, I was blown away by the two-part Apocalypse Now episode. I was especially impressed by the sensitivity shown by the DCU animation team when they showed Turpin's funeral. It was one of the rare times the Jewish faith had been portrayed in episodic TV animation. Yeah, that was, um, you know, that was kind of, uh, well, it was something I'd never seen before. No. I, you know, and, and uh, that was very, that was, uh, you know, I mean, it, it shouldn't be a bold move for him, but it was nice to see him do it. Exactly. You know, that, they, that they did it and that, you know, that not everybody's, you know, Christian or Catholic or whatever, you know, and, and I mean, Jack Kirby was Jewish. It makes uh, perfect sense that Dan Turpin would be Jewish. Would be yeah. Jewish. Yeah, and then they handled, they did handle it very, very well. So, pal Rob Kelly on the network wrote in, great episode as usual, guys. I saw this Superman the Animated Series episode presented by Bruce Tim himself, 
as a sneak preview at the 1998 San Diego Comic-Con. People in the audience literally, literally gasped when the soups cracks Darkseid's face using the Omega Blast, then gasped again when he decked Lex, then roared in laughter at the callback of Lex's jaw being wired shut. In the intervening years, Tim seems a little scarred from all negativity thrown his way by fans, but that afternoon was glorious because he was clearly proud of the episode, and then he got to see the crowd eat it up. Cindy, I know post-Dr. Fives you do not trust my movie opinions anymore, but Bonnie's Kids truly is a good movie. Max would agree. And you trust him, right? <laughs> I don't know. He's friends with you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> He's friends with me, too. What's that mean? I don't even know what that is. Well, you know, I'm too far in with you. you know. <laughs> <laughs> kind of stuck with you. Oh, man. But to see that with Bruce Tim, like, oh, yeah. you know. That's so cool. All, like, live commentary, that would have been awesome, yeah. Okay, Dan S. says, I haven't been checking out the podcast of shows I haven't seen. My bad, but maybe I should because I enjoyed this. Your discussion on Soup's rogues gallery made me think of other classic foes like historical villains, corrupt officials, and strange flavors of kryptonite. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I think I think Superman, and another uh, listener will bring this up, I think Superman the Animated Series is definitely worth a rewatch. I need to go through and rewatch it from start to finish myself. Probably the last time I watched it was when, like, Andrew was little and we were watching it. So, yeah. Liz Ann Oswald writes in, Impressive podcast. Most impressive. Yep, Darkseid was great in these. Ah, Worf is Calabac. That was great casting. Orion was great. I wish this had one more season so we could see Soups win the people back. Dan Turpin as Jack Kirby was great. Sad that he died, but they gave him a great send-off. The Soups Christ stuff is still in use to this day. It's fine. Yeah, especially, this is Chris. Especially, like, you know, Man of Steel. That was, like, super beat you over the head with. Other the creators had him set up uh, more as Moses, but it's cool because Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster were Jewish, just like Jack Kirby. So, right. of course, they'd make him be more Moses. Oh, Ryan showing up. Showing dark side he didn't want no part of this was awesome. Derek Crabb says, Not sure if you're aware already or not based on the commentary, but there are two different versions of the funeral scene for Turpin slash Jack Kirby. Since the character of Dan Turpin on Superman, the animated series was based on the king of comics, Jack Kirby, who had himself recently passed away, Turpin's funeral scene originally featured notable attendees from DC Comics and Marvel Comics, including Stan Lee, the Fantastic Four, Bruce Timm, and many of the Fourth World New Gods. This version was only broadcast once, and subsequent reruns replaced these characters with background extras and more cast. Dan Turpin's funeral was based on the original Jack Kirby eulogy ceremony, where a rabbi sings, I'm, excuse me if I mispronounce this, Hatsi Kaddish, while several Kirby friends and characters pay their last respects to the King of Comics. This scene was altered and removed from DVD official release because it shows Marvel Comics characters in a Superman show, including Alex Ross and his father, Norman Ross, Bruce Timm, Captain America, Mark Evaner, Tony Stark, Glenn Marikami, Dan Ribba, Paul Dini, Goody Rickles, Stan Lee, Alan Burnett, Reed Richards, Nick Fury, Sue Storm, Johnny Storm, and Commandy. Not sure I see all of these, but many I do see are removed with the second clip. Yeah, and go to that. Go to the uh, firewaterpodcast.com and, and and find this in the comments. And there is a link to somebody taped it off a TV from a WB. You can see the little WB in the oh, corner. Yeah. Kids WB. And I did not realize that. I probably saw it when it first aired. Oh, yeah, we did. But, you know, that was like. I think, you know, I probably watched it when it aired and didn't, and, and didn't realize that they had taken it out. Now I have, um, 
it's in one of the two Marvel's books. I, I thought it was the Bruce Tim uh, Modern Masters, but uh, the link that Derek put there says it's in uh, uh, the Krypton Chronicles by Michael Urey um, that shows the uh, storyboards for the characters. And you see Steve Rogers and Tony Stark, mm-hmm. and you see the Fantastic Four and Stan Lee. And, and I thought that they had, you know, just nixed it or they had hidden those characters in the back. I didn't realize it was a version that were their front and center. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can see them. They're there. But I really, WB, I mean, they, they weren't in costume. Right. Steve Rogers is a generic blonde guy. Reed mm-hmm. Richards is a generic uh, brunette salt guy, pepper salt hair, and pepper yeah. guy. And Nick Fury's a guy with an eye patch. Now, the Nick Fury, okay. But they showed Sergeant Fury with his messed up, his injured eye in uh, the Savage Time last right. year. Of course, this is a few years ahead. Mm-hmm. But... But, uh, yeah, I don't know why they made him change it, but it's so cool to know that it actually, that version actually exists. So thanks, Derek. I honestly didn't know that. Bruce Tim does not bring that up in the commentary for that episode, but he probably already got his hand slapped once by Warner Brothers. Right. He didn't want to tick him off again, probably. Right, so. probably so. <laughs> so Tim Price wrote in to say, now I'm extra glad I finished my Superman the Animated Series watch through. Quite chilling to see the stories planted for JLU beginning here. Loved the review and discussion. And yay, season two is on the way. Well, it's here, Tim. It's here. Thank you, Franklins. Uh, yeah, th- thanks, thanks, Tim. And I'm glad that, uh, you know, you got to watch Superman animated series again. As I said, I need to get around to doing that too. Of course, we've cherry picked a few episodes for this. We need to do Speed Demons with the Flash. When mm-hmm. we do a Flash centric episode, we need to cover, cover that one. It's a different actor doing the voice. Gothos Mansion says, Greetings, Franklin. Thanks for the show. I really appreciated the look at the Superman episodes that led up to the Justice League plot threads. I remember watching Apocalypse Now and really enjoying it up until the climax. I hated that Superman remained captured and the new gods showed up and rescued him and Earth. It was very anticlimactic. Even though I'm a Bat fan first, I've been hypersensitive about Superman being disrespected since Frank Miller got a hold of him. Obviously, I'm a huge super fan too and wanted him to be the hero of his own show. This was a start toward the not-so-Superman of Season 1 of Justice League. The funeral at the end for Turpin slash Kirby was touching, and I love the shout-out to King Jack. Normally, I don't like a darker Superman, but the moment where Superman causes the Omega Effect to backfire into Darkseid's brain is one of my favorite moments in Superman history. Chris, you're one of my favorite podcasters. Cindy, too. Hey, glad I got mentioned. So please don't take this as me being that guy. I figured Rob, since he's such a MASH fan, might mention this to you but this trailer will show you how to pronounce Shelly Fabre's name. I doubt I would know how to pronounce her name if it weren't such a huge Elvis fan. Oh, and don't mention what a cutie Shelly was in her younger days. She was, because I don't want Cindy to slap you. <laughs> I wouldn't hit you. I'd never hit you. Right. Ever. You know, I, I hadn't thought about that, about the new gods coming in to save the day, but, I mean... Superman does get free from, you know, Turpin throws the thing that frees his hand and then he busts the way out. Mm-hmm. He kicks Calabac's butt and he's getting ready to get into it with Darkseid when they show up. So they technically didn't. He saved himself with mm-hmm. a little help from Turpin. But, I, you know, they did come in and stop the conflict. But, so, but you know, I mean, that's, I, I didn't really bother me because when it said the end, mm-hmm. and not, not the end, it said not the end at the end of the episode. And also because, you know, that is their greater story, the the conflict flick between them two. Just like the Justice League kind of get in the middle of it here. Mm-hmm. You know, Orion, uh, you know, Darkseid asked for help against Brainiac. Of course, it's a ruse 
But, you know, Superman, you know, the Justice League actually do come to actually stop Brainiac, not to go, let's destroy Darkseid while we're here, which is mm-hmm. what Orion was after. So they kind of get caught up in the middle of it here, too. So, but, uh, and as as far as Shelley Fabray's name, I apologize for saying it wrong. I, I kind of felt like we were saying it wrong, and I should have looked it up how to say it, but I didn't. The Elvis trailer's fun that he that he sent. And, you know, that Elvis trailer, I was watching it, and I was like, you know, this was like the early 60s, and, man, there was a whole lot of titillation in that trailer. There's a whole lot of gyrating rear ends in that trailer. It really, <laughs> it really, so, you know, you think everything's chased and, you mm-hmm. know, under-sexualized back then, but uh, it's not as much as you remember, you know. I mean, it's it's very clean. It's very PG, but at the same time, there's a lot of gyrating in, in, in that t- t- trailer, which is kind of funny. <laughs> okay. And she was quite cute. Yeah. Ward Hill Terry says, One, I'm not surprised you could do so few encounters between Superman and Darkseid. Darkseid was a manipulator, getting others to do his dirty work. Later writers did always grasp that subtle bit of his character. One exception is Zoom's Yukonori, whose current story has Darkseid as the perfect behind-the-scenes controller. Yeah, and we just heard that wrap up on uh, on Done One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. And, of course, our pal, the Irredeemable Shag, did a great job voicing Frank Welker's version of Dark Side from Superpowers, as we mm-hmm. mentioned earlier. How he does that without, like, not being able to speak for three weeks, I'll never know. But, yeah. Um, number two, the clip you played of Inspector Turpin. Did he say, Royer, Coletta, cover me? Or is that just me because that's what I want to hear? It would be so perfect. Yeah, that whole episode, and it's something we didn't get into because, uh, you know, we didn't go into those episodes in depth like we normally do. But, yeah, they dropped the name of just about every prominent Kirby inker. Mm. Like, there's the Senate Air Force Base, and Joe Senate was Jack Kirby's primary inker on the Fantastic Four. Uh, Royer and Coletta do get called out. Uh, Guy Akoya gets called out. Just every, pretty much everybody that ever inked Jack Kirby famously is somebody. It's either a name of some place or it's a cop that right. Turpin names. Turpin drops, Turpin himself even says the names at different points right. in those two episodes. So basically Jack Kirby's calling out his anchors. So that's cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Michael Bailey says, it's amusing to binge a bunch of Chris co-hosted shows and hear on at least three of them that apparently I am tearing my hair out at the mere mention of the Barda Superman sex tape. It's fair. I mean, I used to get really upset about it. That and mullets. But oh, a man- don't get me started on the mullets, dude. <laughs> yeah, but he doesn't. He gets mad when you say Superman had a mullet. He gets upset about it. But a man gets older and he starts to think differently. And frankly, with so many more boneheaded decisions that has been made about Superman over the past ten years, something Byrne did in 1987 doesn't really compare. <laughs> Bendis, <laughs> Clark Kent. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was me coughing, not Mike. Uh, although I know he doesn't like it either. My only objection to Superman the Animated Series comes from how Tim and company jumped on the Superman has a lousy rose gallery bandwagon, and I am more than a little tired of it. Um, I'm sorry, Rich kind of said that in <laughs> to this episode too. So, <laughs> Superman has an exceptional rose gallery. Yes, many of the big guns are guys in suits, but, and maybe I'm asking a bit much, maybe you can rethink them to make a more formidable threat for Superman. Superman doesn't have to go toe-to-toe with the prankster, but you can make a meal having him throw dangerous pranks at Superman. Neutron would have made a great villain. Former Superman Revenge Squad. They kind of do later this season in Hereafter. There mm-hmm. is a Superman Revenge Squad at the beginning of that, which we'll have to get to. 
I love the DCAU guys to death, but they seem to just not think much of Superman. I remember a Wizard article where Tim said, the biggest problem with Superman is he isn't as cool as Batman. And a 20-year-old me had a meltdown about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Bruce Tim likes Superman. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, I don't know if he loves Superman, but he likes Superman. He respects Superman. But, yeah, deep down, Bruce Tim's a Batman guy, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately. But I think they did... Um, you know, and I think they were hesitant to do Superman. They wanted to do from the start, they wanted to do a Superman team up show mm-hmm. and kind of like a, almost like a justice league tryout type thing. And Jeanette Kahn said, no, we need you to do a Superman show. Mm-hmm. We need to do Superman. And they're like, okay. You know, and that's, <laughs> so, so I think there is a resistance. And I think part of it too, is the same thing that kept Bruce Tim from doing justice league. Superman is so powerful that it's, you know, he, he... Hard to find an actual threat. Right. He struggled with finding a threat, which is one reason why they kind of depowered him. Mm-hmm. And as, as Rich pointed out in the episode, you know, they they depowered him somewhat on the show, too. they just get him... He'd get knocked down. Mm-hmm. But on that show, they'd show him getting back up. And then, well, he spoke for that reason on Justice League. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to repeat it again. But, but uh, same thing with Justice League, though. You know, he was a little worried about, okay, when you get all these characters together... I mean, Superman should be able to solve everything. Flash is so fast he can solve everything. Why Mm -hmm. do you even need Batman? And, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's like the appeal is that everybody wants to see him together, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's just an idea that's too cool. Story story mechanics be damned. It's too cool of a thing to let go. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that'll do it for this episode. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters for information on how you can support the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Visit patreon.com slash fwpodcast. And, of course, a huge thank you to writer. Oh, my goodness. Ginormous. Huge, huge thank you to writer-producer Rich Fogel for taking the time to sit down and chat with us on Justice League and Twilight in particular. We can't tell you how much it means to us to have you on the show. We look forward to talking to you again in the future, and best of luck on your projects. Of course, we will share what Rich is working on with you, the listeners, as soon as he's able to talk about it. And as soon as we know it, you'll know it. Join us here next time as we discuss the second two-part story from Justice League Season 2, Tabula Raza, with the return of Lex Luthor and the coming of Amazo. See you then. Bye. Bye. JLU Cast is a Franklin and Franklin production in association with Bugaloo Enterprises worldwide and is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. The characters and properties mentioned in this show are copyright their respective holders. Likewise, all audio clips are copyright their holders and no infringement is implied so please don't sue mommy and daddy emails can be sent to supermatespodcast at gmail.com comments can be left at firewaterpodcast.com find us on facebook by searching for jlucast and fw podcast network follow us on twitter by using the hashtag fwpodcast Please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to JLUcast. Such grandeur. It even outshines the mascara. I've never seen the like. We can take in the sight some other time. Let's concentrate on finding Orion. What have we here? I've never seen bugs like you before. We're not bugs. Well, you're certainly not gods. Hey! Come back here! Only if you catch me! 
He's worse than the Flash. 